You're listening to episode 43 of the Secret Origins Podcast, starring Hawk and Dove, Cave Carson, and Chris KL99. Welcome to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly, and I'm feeling so conflicted right now. My heart is torn between feelings of love and hate, of war and peace. I guess it must be because we're talking about the manifestations of order and chaos on this episode. And I don't mean Cave Carson. No, we're talking about Hawk and Dove, and I'm excited because I lined up the perfect guests for this segment. In their own way, these gentlemen kind of represent the spirits of the Hawk and the Dove. My first guest, joining us again from the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary, he is a doctor and a healer and thus embodies the essence of peace and goodwill. Please welcome Ange back to the show. Welcome, Ange. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. I love these characters, so I can't wait to talk about them. Awesome, awesome. And on the other side, from the Doom Patrol podcast, Waiting for Doom, he lives in Australia, a land that I know primarily as a haven for criminals and brawlers like Russell Crowe, so... Please say hello again to Mr. Paul Hicks. How are you, Paul? I'm good. I saw where you were going with that and got a bit disturbed, but uh, well done. Uh, You guys know the show. You've been here before. Let's not waste time. Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in this series. And by definition, one of them has to be the worst. Not saying it's this one. Uh, Oh. um, Forewarning, foreshadowing. Um, Ange, what is your history with these characters? How and when did you discover Hawk and Dove? So, you know, I always say that I was reading at an early age and my parents got me comic books early on. And many of the comics that I can remember reading first are from the early 70s, mostly because my parents were getting them at yard sales for me. So a a lot of my earliest recollections are books that, um, I mean, I was barely alive when they came out. And one of them somewhere along the way was a Teen Titans book where there was Teen Titans West that had Golden Eagle. And uh, Hawk and Dove were there, and that was sort of the first time that I saw them. 
I liked Hawk's costume with kind of those like red pointy cape pieces sort of going over shoulders. And I kind of tried to follow them um, where I could. So that meant the occasional Brave and the Bold. And then when the new series came out, the uh, Kessel and Liefeld miniseries, I was sort of there from the beginning. And then subsequently in my later days, um, I've become something of a Steve Ditko fan, and I've sort of gone back and tried to get the earliest stuff. Um, So I've kind of been kicking around with these characters for a while. Paul, what about you? How did you discover Hawk and Dove? Well, the contrast between me and Ange will continue because uh, my parents actively discouraged me from reading comics. So I didn't get into comics until I was pretty much an adult. Um, So sometime in the late 80s, I wandered into a comic shop and sort of looked around and saw lots of different number ones and picked up DC number ones and Marvel number ones. And pretty much I didn't like the Marvel number ones because they were sort of crap uh but the dc ones were great um so somewhere along the line i came across the hawk and dove mini and uh yeah i, I kind of fell in love with uh, the characters the char- i'm specifying the characters not the art here um but i was very interested to see where it all went and i you know just followed hawk and dove from there and sort of got all over the dc i got all up in the dc universe's business in the late 80s so um yeah so a bit of a different origin for me but yeah, a similar love for DC that Ange has, I'd say. I finally read the first issue of the Hawk and Dove mini by Kessel and Kessel and Liefeld. Just as prep for this, I, I was not looking forward to it because I am not a Rob Liefeld fan. Even when I collected like the first two years of X-Force in the 90s, I wasn't buying it for the art. I was buying it for the characters. Yes, whatever that says about me, I was reading 90s X-Men books not for the art. Um <laughs> Yeah, but I wasn't looking forward to that, but I read that first issue, and I was amazed at how inoffensive the art in that series was. Like, whatever Carl Kessel did to rein in or tone down Liefeld's work on that, it was it was nothing short of miraculous. It's still not the style that I prefer with my art, but it like there, I couldn't complain about it, so that was really incredible. For me, I'm not. I gotta be upfront about this. I have never really liked these characters. I think there's there's something kind of self defeating about the premise of them. You've got these polar opposites, and especially with the Dove character, I think a pacifist superhero is really hard to convey. It kind of goes against the conventions of the medium itself, and when you've got the embodiment of peace and the embodiment of war and they've got to work together they've got to find some kind of compromise that's a gimmick that kind of you can explore in philosophical worldviews that steve ditko did but i don't think it works for action heroes and maybe i'm wrong and i brought you guys on because you're fans of these characters and i want you to try and prove me wrong i find your ignorance delightful ryan (laughs) i'm really looking forward to dealing with you but also like just the fact that they're such polar opposites that seems like it's a relationship that should be reserved for the hero and his arch nemesis not the hero and the partner i think even if you contrast batman and superman when they're the world's finest together there's still more that unites them than divides them that's the shtick that the movies don't always understand but i don't get that from these guys so i i don't know but anyway uh let's get into the publication history like i said if i'm wrong about these guys that's why you're here to prove me wrong so 
the first iteration of Hawk and Dove were the brothers Hank and Don Hall, who debuted in the 75th issue of Showcase, published in 1968. They were, of course, the inventions of plotter and artist Steve Ditko, which is why Ange is here on the show, because he always appears when there's a Steve Ditko issue to be talked about. Two months after their initial tryout in Showcase, the boys got their own bi-monthly series called The Hawk and the Dove. That series only ran for six issues, ending in mid-1969, but just as that book was getting cancelled, Hawk and Dove appeared in Teen Titans issue 21. In 1970, Hawk and Dove returned to Teen Titans in issue 25, and stayed with that book until issue 31. After that, they dropped out of sight for about six years, but returned in Teen Titans issues 50, 51, and 52. Six months after that, Hawk and Dove appeared in Showcase issue 100, alongside damn near every other character who ever appeared in Showcase up to that point. In 1981, Hawk and Dove teamed up with Batman in The Brave and the Bold issue 181, which was written by Alan Brenner, by the way. After that, the brothers suffered a major shock to their status quo when Dove died during the Crisis on Infinite Earths. Hawk continued to fight injustice as an angry, angry man in several issues of the Baxter series New Titans, and even got a solo story in Teen Titans Spotlight issues 7 and 8. In 1988, the status quo was changed yet again when a five-issue Hawk and Dove miniseries introduced a new female Dove named Dawn Granger. That led to an ongoing series that lasted 28 issues. In the 90s, nothing interesting or nonsensical happened to Hawk and Dove, nothing at all. Hawk certainly didn't become Monarch or Extant or anything weird like that. Nothing about Armageddon 2001 or Zero Hour happened. He didn't die and come back at the end of Blackest Night. And yet, Hawk and Dove were major characters in the Brightest Day maxi-series. A new Hawk and Dove series kicked off in 2011 with the launch of the New 52. Sales were really bad, and the book was deservedly cancelled after only eight issues. Did I miss anything significant from their appearances? Uh, I think there was another Hawk and Dove miniseries in the 2000s as well, just six issues, uh, with Dawn Granger and her sister. Yeah, at some point, Dawn's sister takes on the mantle of Hawk, and they sort of dabble in the Teen Titans book, and then I think the sister actually gets killed at some point to make the way for uh, Hank to come back. Yeah, but I never read it, so I've got no idea how good it was, but I didn't feel like reading it at the time, so... All right, listeners, we're going to take a short promo break to advertise Paul's podcast, since Ange is too busy raising a family and saving lives to do his own. We'll be back in a minute, though, so don't go away. Doom Patrol. 1963. Doom Patrol debut. My Greatest Adventure, issue 80. 1964. My Greatest Adventure, renamed Doom Patrol. Issue 85. 1968. Doom Patrol Destroyed. Issue 121. 1976. The new Doom Patrol. Showcase 94. 1987. Doom Patrol Volume 2. Copperberg Lytle. 1989. Morrison and Case. Issue 19. 1993. Pollack. Issue 64. 2001 Doom Patrol Volume 3 Arcudi Hewitt 2004 Doom Patrol Volume 4 Burn Shush 2009 Doom Patrol Volume 5 
Giffen Clark. 2012. 2013. 2014. 2015. 2016. Waiting for Doom, the Doom Patrol podcast. Because we're waiting. Available on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Podbean.com. Issue 43 has a cover date of August 1989, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, as if they would know, the actual on-sale date was June 20th, 1989, or 27 years ago from yesterday as of this recording. As with most issues in the series by this point, the book was 48 pages and carried a $1.50 price tag. Mark Wade edited the book, and the cover for issue 43 was provided by Paris Cullens. It shows Hawk and Dove leaping through a cave with the book's other feature characters, Cave Carson and Chris KL99, yes, that Chris KL99, running in the background. Paul, what do you think of this cover? I like it. They're running from, it looks like some sort of eruption from above rather than below. It's, it's like there's streams of energy or light coming through a hole in the ceiling and it's active. It's good. It it's, seems to be uh, Paris Cullen's channeling a bit of Mike Mignola in tiny feet and some <laughs> heavy shading. I, I, I quite enjoy it. And I, I love the way Chris is leaping with one hand, propping himself up on a, a stalagmite, I believe, are the ones on the bottom of the ground. Mm-hmm. So I enjoy it. Yeah, it's it's a I, I really like it. Ange, what do you think? Unlike other covers of this series that have really been static images, this really has a sense of energy to it. So I do think that it's good. I think the um, you know, it's a cave, so of course it's going to be brown inks, and that's sort of the one thing that I think sort of holds me back from making it uh, like a truly spectacular cover because um, Hawk and the other characters in the background kind of blend in a little bit. But I do think that it does feel like this could have been a scene in a super team family book, and I wouldn't mind reading the story. Yeah, we get a very ab- sorry, we get no. a very abtastic Hawk and Dove here. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really a lot of. Crunching, bending at the midsection. So. It's a bit crotchy, too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I agree, Ange. I, I wish the colors popped a little bit more. There's a lot of red, white, and brown, um, and, and Dove's blue is kind of really muted in this. 
and I don't know if this was a coloring mistake or if it was a you know a dedicated choice, but Chris KL99 in his Silver Age appearances was usually drawn with a yellow shirt, not a white one. Because when I saw them together, I was like, is that like Cave Carson's sidekick, one of the guys from his group? It's like, no, that must be Chris Kale 99 but maybe they thought the yellow shirt would blend in against the yellow light or whatever the energy thing coming in from the background is. But Paul, you're right about it being, I mean, a lot of the covers are just characters not necessarily interacting or not doing anything really interesting. I do think this is one of the better covers. It's, I think this is the best piece of art about this entire issue. And that's not just a criticism of the art inside. Some of the art inside is really good. I think this is the best art in the whole book. Yeah, again, I just maybe wish a few coloring distinctions made it like pop a little bit more, but oh well. Paul, are you ready to tell our listeners the secret origin of the hawk and the dove? Bloody oath I am, yep. (laughs) The origin of hawk and dove. It's written by Barbara Kiesel and Carl Kiesel. The penciler is Trevor Von Eden, and there's a second penciler, John Koch, or Koch, depending on your pronunciation. But that's one of the things of this app. We've got lots of different pronunciations of names going on. Ian Aiken was the inker, and Brian Garvey, no relation to Mike Garvey, I'm sure, was the other inker. <laughs> and the letters were all done by Janice Chang, and the colorist was Helen Vesic. So, it starts. A man sits at a desk covered in documents, talking to himself. Well, let's review the evidence on you two, shall we? Hawk and dove. And he looks through newspaper clippings and observes there's been one hawk and two doves. He wonders if hawk had any say in his replacement choice. And he observes that hawk reeks of chaos and dove is tied to order, and they're an interesting if unlikely pair. He fires up the computer to look at the Titans files obtained via the Wildebeest Society. The Wildebeests were an emerging Titans foe at the time. And uh, he looks at an old magazine this week in Washington, shows the original all-male duo with the cover copy, Who Are They? Where Did They Come From? And presumably after 10 minutes, because it's such an old computer, uh, it boots up and the computer shows the Titans data. Um, Hawk's status dismissed. Dove 1 deceased. The female dove, no details. So another newspaper clipping tells of the debut, saving a judge from a mob hit. The man concludes there's not enough here. He'll have to conduct his own investigation. He visits a Mr. Marino in jail and introduces himself as Barter. So we finally find the man's name. And he offers to help this uh, prisoner make parole in exchange for information. Marino explains how the attempt on Judge Hall was to tie up loose ends after Hall's assistance in Marino taking over the gang from Dargo. Marino was chased off by Judge Hall's son, Hank. Marino first saw Hawk and Dove at the hospital when they, he attempted to finish off the judge after his earlier unsuccessful attempt, but he surmises that they tailed him and overheard his plans back at his warehouse. Barter visits the warehouse and uses this handheld gizmo to view the events that occurred there long ago. The Hall brothers have followed Marino, but ended up locked inside, unable to save their dad, till randomly a disembodied voice offered them power. After Hank asked for brute strength, Don asked for the power to save his father, and the voice says, We have here a hawk and a dove, and the two are transformed, hawk into an angular red and white, and Don into soft blue and white. Barter is astonished that they were created by direct supernatural intervention, but by who, he wonders. Later, Barter is visited by a creepy child called Child. And an exchange is soon done. A stolen glowing orb of tendrils for a rock called Floor. Each tendril holds a memory related to Hawk and Dove. 
After Child has left, Barter accesses memories that show a medieval-esque fantasy realm where a Lord of Order, Teratea, in the form of a medallion possessed by Knight, has to fight T'Char, a Lord of Chaos in the shape of a dragon. After millennia of fighting, the Knight and the dragon declare a truce. Another memory tendril shows the two lords have teamed up to conduct an experiment on Earth where they've observed the ideologically conflicted brothers. With the candidates pre-selected, they choose their moment of great need, which is an intervention in their dad's assassination, to grant them the power. Entirely premeditated, not random at all. A later memory shows that Don lacks the inner strength and Dove has embraced violence, chaos overwhelming order. The voices talk of their need to replace him to keep the experiment on track. They have a new candidate in mind, and a cosmic crisis, uh, which is the crisis on infinite Earths, is the perfect cover for a power swap. Against a backdrop of red skies, a young woman seeks to rescue her mother from anarchist terrorists. At the same moment, Dove is saving kids from a collapsing building. The woman hears the same disembodied offer of power and says Dove, becoming magically garbed in the female version of the outfit. At that same moment, the power in the outfit leaves Don Hall and he is crushed in the rubble. Barta is unable to access any more memories. As the owner of the orb, the fearsome dragon T'Char suddenly appears. T'Char, having discovered the theft and tracked Barta. Barta points out that he's only traded for the orb, never actually stealing it. The dragon is unable to use the magic to punish due to Barta's null magic spell, but points out that he could do a lot of damage to Barta's collection of mystical objects in the enclosed space, unless the orb is given back to him. Barter explains that he is under a curse that restricts him to trade transactions only, but he can return the orb for the answer to one question. Why did you create Hawk and Dove? We did it, and the dragon rears back slowly to show that he is wearing the medallion of Teratea, because we are in love. A stunned Barter asks when will they know if the experiment is a success, but the Lord of Chaos points out only one answer was agreed on for this trade. The story concludes with Barter declaring he has enough information on Hawk and Dove and that he will have business with them soon. Okay, thank you very, very much. Well done. Um, I hate everything about this story, but again, <laughs> I, do, I don't want to be overly negative, so let's start with you guys. Ange, what are your thoughts on this story? There's one thing that I'll say is that I agree with what you said earlier, that it's sort of difficult to pull off a truly pacifist action superhero, And I think that's probably why the earlier form of Hawk and Dove, Hank and Don, never seemed to really catch on. Because really, when you read those stories, Don is just like, I don't want to do anything, right? He's sort of um, Mm -hmm. a very inactive pacifist. Mm -hmm. So I thought that the change from war and peace to chaos and order was really a wonderful change in focus of these characters and that's what makes it work much better because you can understand that there sort of needs to be sort of a little bit of give and take in those two fields right what i don't like about the story though is that i mean i can deal with non-linear storytelling but the fact that they go back and forth to the original origin a couple of times and not necessarily in a way that's easy to understand makes anybody who I don't think has read the original showcase kind of sort of struggling with what exactly is happening here. Yeah, you can see them locked in that closet, and yeah, you can hear them say the words, but the action of, like, there's just, like, one panel of a grenade being thrown, and you never find out really what happens there, and then there's a panel of somebody running away, and and I can piece those together because I've read that 
another story. In fact, I once reviewed it on Diablo Frank's Bloodlines blog, but I think that that probably makes it a little bit of a tricky story um, to understand. Just to give one specific example, on the bottom of page four, the last panel is a panel of an arm hitting uh, a mobster who's shooting a gun. The arm is completely flesh-toned, and the character in the back looks like it's Don. In the showcase book, the arm that's flesh-toned is Dove's arm, and the person in the background is the dad about to get shot. But you completely lose that here. And so when I first reread this, I was like, I have no understanding of what that panel means. I had that note, too, that exact thing. I was like, what the hell is happening in that panel? Yeah. Um, so, I, I, so you know, I think that um, – so that's like a colorist error that I think makes it a little bit harder to understand. Um, it's also – I, I think the composition of that – because even – again, like the, the strange layout, it's a, it's a small panel, but we get one arm, I guess, sort of like judo chopping or striking another hand that's holding a gun – and the gun just ha- is. I'm, are we assuming like the gun is just firing and missing its intended target because it's being knocked out of its hand? But the gun is then like pointed the opposite direction of the way the hand was holding it. So it's just it's a weirdly laid out panel, and that's it. I think even if that was colored black and white or colored correctly, it's not a good panel. Yeah, you know, I mean, it is. It's almost a straight lift from the showcase issue, and that is one panel of truly like sequential storytelling of the action in that scene. Hmm. This is just kind of plopped in the middle of something, which I think makes it incomprehensible. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I agree with that because I did the synopsis and I was confused about what the judge plot was because the Marino story makes it imply that he was in league with the judge and then he's trying to kill the judge. I've got no idea what's going on there because I've never read the original story. But certainly it carried it that these were snippets of their origin and I realize we're sort of seeing it through the veil of a different uh, character's eyes. But yeah, it is a little bit confusing. I'll give you that. I think it's it's not new reader friendly. Part of that is Barbara and Carl Kessel Kessel Kessel. I'm not sure. They approach this in a like instead of non-linear fashion. It's it's all over the place. It's jumping to different times, showing the same scene from different perspectives instead of just a straight shot. We've also got two different art teams. One of them. I feel like I spent half of my podcasting career complaining about Trevor Von Eden, and I, I have to make this uh, this announcement every time. I liked his work in the 70s. His stuff on Black Lightning was awesome. The Batman annual he drew was awesome. I liked his work uh, in the uh, World's Finest backups when he was drawing Green Arrow and Black Canary and those. Good stuff. But at some point, like he seems like averse to drawing faces, like, even on this page four, like, you, we've got this barter guy. There's just, like, a piece of, like, plastic, like, in the in the prison glass that's blocking his face. The next one, there's a slip of paper in front of Marino's face. We get all of these shots of people from behind, so we don't really get a good perspective. And And on the third page, the entire page is a less interesting version of the back of superhero trading cards when we just get their <laughs> their style guide profile picture and their stats. And I don't even know what these stats are. Like, the second panel, when it's got Hawk, what's the STD stand for? Like, that's probably not what it's supposed... what I usually think of the... I'll defer to Ange on that. He's a doctor. Right. Like, we've got these six categories. Int is that intelligence 79.42 percent what does that mean weight height okay (laughs) but mass is that like i I don't know what this and and why is the the second dove uh, don granger we get a close-up of her head but we don't the others and 
Uh, okay. All right. Moving on. I don't. I don't want to. I. Yeah. <laughs> no. No. I, I, okay. But before that, so who is this barter guy? Who is he, and what does he want? Why is he investigating Hawk and Dove? This is part of the issue with this story is this story would have happened if Secret Origins didn't exist. It would have happened in the Hawk and Dove run. Barter was only just introduced, uh, I think, in issue three. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's when he was introduced. And you don't know much about him. He is a mysterious character. Like his thing is he makes trades. Um, He's been cursed um so you don't really find out anything about him much more than that through for most of the series um one of the things that really disappoints me about the art at the beginning is he's just sitting at a desk and there's like a shelf in front of me with a big jewel and there's some papers and everything when you see uh where barter his office in uh hawk and dove number three it's filled with um fascinating dc memorabilia and stuff so there's a green lantern lantern there there's all sorts of you know cosmic looking things it's you know it's the sort of thing that artists love to you know put in all the knickknacks that you can think of in the you know the jla showcase room and things like that or the flash museum but uh yeah, uh, this artist seems to have no interest in populating this uh, room with anything interesting. So, yeah, you don't know much about Barter here, and you don't find out too much more about him in a hurry in the series either. Is he? Am I supposed to be afraid of him? Is he supposed to be a threat? I had no idea what his agenda was. Was he, like, at the beginning, I'm like, is he a reporter? And then I was like, okay, is he stalking these guys? Is he magical? Is he just an occult investigator? Is he a collector? Like, yeah, you're talking about, like, what's in the background. On page nine, there's a Batman cape and cowl hanging, like, in the background. Like, I got to that page. Yeah. Yeah. Like, he's, um... I'll say he's kind of like a poor man's John Constantine in some ways for me. Um, he does have this trading thing, and he, he's very self-serving. He clearly wants to increase his own power, and so he'll get information and then trade it to somebody to get something bigger and then trade that to get something bigger and things like that. Um, so there is sort of a feel of menace, and there's also a feeling that he can manipulate people to sort of do what he wants by bartering with them. So with Hawk and Dove, he says, I can give you some information about your origins. If you do me this favor, that's what the trade is going to be. So he can kind of make people do what he wants to do, not in any way as clever as John Constantine can manipulate people. But you do see that throughout the book, that that's what he's trying to do is sort of gather more information and gather more things of power so that he can improve his own uh, position. Yeah, I'd call him like a dude version of Madame Xanadu. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, he's there, he wants stuff, um, you know, you, your, his goal and your goal might intersect and that will be mutually beneficial. Um, but, you know, he will try and trick you into getting what he wants uh, at an advantage. So He's a character who only existed in Hawk and Dove. No one did anything with him outside of this series, as far as I can see. Um, and I think it's a pity because he's he's an interesting character and you could certainly use him in a series to achieve, you know, finding information and stuff like that. Like he he could be a real asset to the DC universe if you have a guy whose whole deal is he can trade something, but you have to trade with him. He can't, you know, give it freely or you can't take it. Um yeah, one of the plots that comes out in this uh, the ongoing series is that he gets double crossed by Hawk and Dove and then a lot of his motivation after that is revenge. Yeah, it, it is interesting to see that curse play out because at some point somebody just gives him something and runs away. And 
he is compelled to seek that person out to give them something back because he can't just receive something. There always has to be a trade involved. So it is sort of an interesting character or a flaw or um, trait that I think could have been used elsewhere and just hasn't been. So but he'd be really handy at a comic convention, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll give you this, you know, custom commission sketch, but it'll cost you. So. Or then the first question about him: Does he have a mustache? Because one of the artists draws him with a mustache, and one doesn't. I don't think Trevor Von Eden drew him with a mustache, but when we get to the pages that I assume are by John, and I, you mentioned that name, I, I've heard that name pronounced Koch, I've heard it pronounced Coke, and I've heard it pronounced Cook. So take your pick. He definitely has a mustache. Okay. Yeah. I think because, yep. and again, yeah. when we got to the change in art, I'm like, did. Is this the same character? But Okay. You mentioned that this story would have appeared had it been in Secret Origins or not. That is a big problem for me. And I had this problem actually when I talked about uh, Secret Origins Annual Number 3, which was the Teen Titans Annual, or the Teen Titans uh, origin story, because I still maintain that that should have been the 1989 annual for the Teen Titans book. It wasn't a Secret Origin. George Perez was writing that as if it was another part of the chapter of these characters, and I'm, you know, it's the same thing here. I'm reading this without the context. I don't know who these characters are. I don't know what's going on. And I don't think the Kessels give me all of the information I need to understand who these characters are, what their motivations are. If this had been Hawk and Dove issue six or seven or something, then that I would have had that context because I would have been following it along. But if this is supposed to basically set the, give me the simplest sort of version of who these characters are, what they're about, and lead me into the series, it doesn't do that. It's too confusing. I don't know who they are or their motivations. I mean, Hawk and Dove, I get them, but honestly, comparatively, Hawk and Dove, like Han, Don and Hank, are a small part of this story. They're not the main characters, we spend more time with Barter. We spend more time with a dragon named Tachar, I think, than we spend with Hawk and Dove. So, well, you know, I'll say that the this arc actually slowly unravels over the course of, I think, like the first 20 issues of the book. So Secret Origins came out, I think, either around issue three or issue four of the Hawk and Dove series. And they had sort of hinted in the original miniseries that, oh, this is going to be order and chaos now, not anything else. But we don't learn about Teretaya and Tachar, I think, until there's actually a storyline where they go to this mystic realm and take off the Hawk and Dove costumes and you kind of see what they look like underneath. So, you know, I think it almost shows that they had um, a long play planned, right? This is really starting to plant the seeds of stuff that isn't going to happen for another year and a half in the main book. Mm-hmm. Um, I, to be honest, only recently got this book, I would say, within the last year, the Secret Origins book. So I had only read the series. And in the series, it kind of plays out very, very slow. I I wonder how I would have felt if I would have read this, because a lot of the mystery of that, what do they look like underneath and where are they from, is kind of answered here. Um, Although maybe you wouldn't understand it back then uh, to sort of put all the pieces together. Hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a bit oblique. And I came at it the other way because I was a Hawk and Dove reader and then I knew there was a Secret Origin issue that I should go and get at the time. Um, that was my approach to Secret Origins was I tended to look at what the characters were in it and decide if I wanted to get that issue or not. So I wasn't so much buying Secret Origins every month. 
Um, so I, yeah, and it was on my radar. So because I was reading the series, I thought, oh, I have to go and get that. And I would point out in this story's favour is unlike a lot of Secret Origin stories, it actually has a secret in it that we didn't know until this story, and that was the fact that the source of the um, powers for Hawk and Dove was, um, you know, it, it was intelligent. It had someone behind it, and it was deliberate. And um, these are these two characters that we've never seen before, um, but they've been behind everything, you know, if you retro continuity it, um, all the way going back to this, um, the 60s version. And, uh, you know, if you've got two people who are in love and they want to pick someone to embody their love, I don't think two brothers is a particularly good choice. <laughs> that would be my observation. That is a good point about there actually being a secret and there being a new revelation about the story. That was one of the things that I did like. I liked that they retconned their history, and, and both of you guys have mentioned that, that it's no longer about war and peace because that's is a, a struggle. Like when you get into aggression and pacifism, both of them are kind of insufferably annoying at first when you break them down individually like that. But if you justify or balance order and chaos, that's easier to handle in the superhero medium. So I think that was a wise decision that they made to go with that. Uh, it, I mean, it, it, they call out the silliness of the original origin. When we go back and we hear T'Char narrating and kind of explaining how they did this, there, there are word balloons and captions that kind of make it sound like they, it's, it's almost making fun of how dumb these guys were for just listening to this abstract voice. And I was like, okay, you are, you are improving upon the old origin, but it kind of feels like you're doing it at the expense of the origin. So I, I wish it had been approached or written just a little bit differently. I liked the change that they were making, but it still felt like they were kind of kicking the old story, the old version, while it was down, because it's already kind of a silly origin story anyway. Um, yeah, well, I, I think one of the intrinsic problems with the original series of Hawk and Dove is if you look through the the, the covers from the, the 60s run, is they're very much like, um, you know, Haw uh, Hawk involved in action on one side and Dove saying, you know, if I punch that person, then the kids will enjoy this comic. And he's standing to one side, not, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and they all seem to have that, you know, sort of, you know, Dove not wanting to fight and Hawk wanting to fight. And uh, the writer, Steve Skeets, um, said in an interview that, you know, he wanted to write Dove differently, but the editorial uh, team and uh, Ditko at the time didn't really want Dove to be involved in fights and everything. So he wanted Dove to be more of an even match with Hawk, uh, you know, to not just be passive but to be you know uh defensive and strategic and things like that that would be actually useful in an action comic mm -hmm. and so he felt really shortchanged by what was going on in the comic so you know for my mind if you look at the original hawk and dove it's uh like the adventures of wolverine and jericho it's you know someone who wants to be an action hero <laughs> full on and someone who people don't like and you know is seen as um yeah, I'm sorry, I'm offending all the Jericho fans here, but you know, it's a it's a bad pairing, and it doesn't yeah. work well. Um, also, the one place where I thought it actually worked out wasn't in comics. It was in an episode of Justice League Unlimited, where it was like a Wonder Woman centric episode, but it it introduced Hawk and Dove, and I thought they at least had a good handle on Dove's pacifism and used it to save the day at the end. But you can't do that all the time. Like, that's that's a type of story and a type of gimmick, and a, a type of, like, climactic resolution that works once in a very extreme case based on that story. So if you had to do that month in, month out. And the other thing about the retcon, 
I didn't like their approach that they were actively trying to replace Don as the dove because I think it takes Don's sacrifice during the crisis and instead of being like a, a noble sacrifice when he's saving these kids, they like strip him of his powers at the last minute and it almost feels like order and chaos murdered him. And that, yep. that really changes the nature of his death and how I feel about him. And again, it's like, yeah, he was a weak character. He wasn't a character that fans would gravitate towards. And now again, it feels like you're kicking him while he's down in order to promote your new creation, Dawn. And, yeah. and, yeah. and again, I, I, yeah. I, I like her better. But the thing about the story that I like is this is the fulcrum point in the Hawk and Dove story. So you've got a version of Hawk and Dove before that didn't work. That's the two brothers. And this is the point where they become a Hawk and Dove that work together. So Dawn as a character is um, she was strategic. She could deflect people's energy. You know, she fought intelligently. She improved Hawk as a character. Like Hawk is a jerk. He, he is like Guy Gardner without the parts that you like. You know, and most of the stories that dealt with him before, you know, after his brother died are him just, you know, running around wanting to be Rambo and being obnoxious and without the charm or the wit that came with Guy Gardner's appearances in JLI. You know, and he, he was dumb. He was, you know, fighting based on opinion and not fact and, you know, getting into trouble, getting caught, um, getting rescued, having no part in his own, uh, you know, no agency in his situations. Um, so he, the character had been bouncing around being wretched until they introduced the new Dove. And she was a really good character, and together they worked well. So part of the thing is he was a jerk, but she made him better. You know, she kept him in check and put put him on task and, mm-hmm. you know, made him far more effective as a, as a physical character uh, because of that. So that was one of the joys of the series was seeing them growing to be partners. And this story is coming so early that, you know, they're not really doing that very well yet. So, yeah, what do you think, Ange, about that? I agree with you. Um, And I even think that there are times that he makes her better. So it's kind of a little bit of back and forth because there are, she's very, you know, she will talk about how she can see the order of all things. So she knows that when a lamp falls, it's going to fall this way. So if she kicks it, it'll go that way. So she understands all of that, but she can get caught in her own regimented way of doing things. And he will sometimes say, sometimes you have to do something unexpected, chaotic to succeed with what you want to do so that the other people won't understand, you know, won't be prepared for what you're going to do. And she occasionally has to say, you know, you're right. We wouldn't have been able to succeed had you hadn't done something that initially seemed pretty stupid, but now I understand where you were going with it. So it really does do that. And then over the course, there there was definitely a tension between them. Like, should they be dating or not dating in the book? They definitely have you know, other love interests, but every so often they're like, why are they always together? And of course, these two lords of order and chaos are in love. And eventually that does kind of bring the two of them together. They absorb some of that essence. And so I thought that that was also another sort of interesting um, layer to put on top of these characters. Like they say, you know, um, are we in love or are they in love? And we're just reflecting that. And so they kind of are, are trying to figure out how to work that into their partnership. Yeah, definitely. And the comic, I mean, it's a really charming superhero comic on its own. I mean, this is probably the worst example of what was going on at the time. And I I agree with you, Ryan. It doesn't serve as a secret origin in that it's a gateway into the story in an effective way. Um, It's more of a bonus for people who are already on board with inferior art to what was going on in the series at the time. (laughs) 
So. Yeah, I loved the series. I mean, you know, one of the early issues, Hawk is fighting a guy whose power is to basically, like, cause explosions and part of Hawk's costume is ripped away and you see fur underneath. And that was like the first time you ever saw something underneath. And so even early on, they were sort of saying like, this is not what you're used to. And you're going to have to, you know, come along with us to sort of get to the end of what this mystery is. Um, I mean, I was even a letter hack, you know, if you look hard enough, there's a letter from me in there somewhere. (laughs) Who was the artist on the ongoing series? Was it Carl Kessel? Uh, he was the writer, still co-writing with um, Barbara. Uh, they're no longer married, I believe. Um, but Greg Guler, I think, was the predominant artist at the time, and he was terrific. He was, you know, really good, solid uh, superhero work there. Yeah, and that mystery with the fur was, I mean, I remember it being such a huge deal when you saw it. You went, what is that under his costume? I've never seen anything like that. And, you know, and it was, it added a whole new dimension to it that was so unexpected at the time. So, yeah. Are you sure he wasn't just a very hairy man? I mean, he's pretty (laughs) alpha male aggressive type of character. Well, no. I'm a bit of a hairy man. I have a fire warning in summer, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, I don't think it, it was more than that. It was um, very, you know, bear-like. <laughs> yeah, I was going to uh, say Chewbacca-like. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I did want to talk about the reveal at the very end, the last page. The fact that the Lord of Order and the Lord of Chaos, Terataya and Char, they are in love. The idea is interesting. The delivery, to me, feels like a joke because I wanted to laugh when I turned that page. <laughs> it's a big dragon wearing bling saying she is saying he or she is in love with this necklace, this jewelry. And not just that reveal, but Barter's reaction to it, like, mind blown, this changes everything that he knows. And again, because I don't know who this guy is or why he's been so obsessed with finding out about them the entire time. So I just, it, it, I got to the end, I was like, what the hell did I read? What? And if this was, if I was, if this was just an interstitial chapter amongst the Hawk and Dove series, that would have been fine. But presented as it is, as a solo chapter of a Secret Origin series, I don't think the creators gave me an inexperienced a person unfamiliar with the main characters. I don't think they gave me enough information about who they are or what they're about. Because I still feel like I spent more time with Barter than I did with Hawk and Dove. And I don't know if I'm supposed to be afraid of Barter. Uh, like, is he a Jack McGee character, like from The Incredible Hulk? Or is he going to be the big mastermind villain behind their whole series. I don't know. And that's a problem for me. When I was already not inclined to liking these characters, this story... Uh, yeah, I... To me, this is the worst Secret Origin story that I have read in this series up to this point. And you guys coming from a different perspective, different background, knowing more about the characters, maybe you don't see these as problems or you might be more willing to forgive them. I don't know. But for me, from my perspective, this was bad. It was just bad on almost every level. I can see your point and it's a pity that 
uh, yeah, it comes that way if you don't know the series. I mean, I, I have always had this in my collection as issue 4.5, so it's been bagged with uh, issue 4 directly at all times. So <laughs> when I've read, read the series, I've just gone from issue 4 straight into it and then into issue 5. So I can see exactly where you're coming from. Um, but it's it's hard for me to see it from that perspective because I, I love Hawk and Dove and I love the series and, you know, I've got strong nostalgic feelings and i did a complete read through uh, coming up for this episode and it holds up i mean i i find the things i liked about the series back then are still there and you know it had a great supporting cast you know the interaction with characters like hank has a girlfriend and you know there's a little bit of confusion about his relationship with dawn and her involvement and um you know dawn keeps dating uh, trying to date this guy and at the same time there's a police officer who wants to date her and you know <laughs> the supporting cast was really good so they had they had friends at university and those friends had uh you know family members and things that came into the series and you know their parents were involved and i don't know it's it sort of captured it's a bit like 90210 without some of the ridiculous stuff <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'll echo everything uh, that Paul said that, you know, again, having read the Hawk and Dove series and then coming to this, I can say, boy, this is really sort of adds a little bit of detail and background to everything that I know is happening there. But when I read it, I'm like, I can understand how anybody who doesn't understand all of this is going to be completely confused. I mean, how am I supposed to know if I don't know what I know that that amulet is the Lord of Order? You know, because it's just looks like a chain around a dragon's neck, which we see all the time. So I can understand all of that. But I also reread the whole series to sort of, you know, catch up because of this um, podcast. And and like Paul, it really, you know, it was just a very fun series, you know, and it did have this good supporting cast that sort of move in and out of the book and you get to know them and all of those things that that I think really worked well and then sort of right in the middle there's this okay except now we're going to go to this you know fantasy world for three or four issues where we're going to reveal everything that you didn't know so there's a lot of stuff on a college campus and then this you know three-part almost elf quest type stuff (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's what they were setting up with these designs, but making them a dragon, the Lord of Chaos a dragon. Like usually, the Lords of Order and Chaos at this point in the comics were were blobs or like floating egg yolks and things. And <laughs> yeah. um, you know, if you, if they're in love, they could just smoosh together. I don't I don't know what the problem is. Um, but you know, this sort of set up the fact that they could go to the realm where they come from, and and it was this fantasy, as um, Ange said, and. I think the first 17 issues, you've got the five-issue miniseries, which had Liefeld art, and then you've got the first 17 issues of the ongoing. That is a great arc. Um, you know, if you, if anyone wants to, I mean, I'm jumping to the end of what I'd recommend, but the, that would be what I'd recommend. The stuff that came after that is good. It is not as good, though there are some highlights, which I'll pick up later. The last thing that I wanted to mention, and uh, again... I hate just I hate just criticizing these guys. I hate just like attacking them. But the one of the other things was I like Carl Kessel and I like Barbara Randall, and this story was very disappointing. And I like Sterling Gates the way he writes Supergirl back in the old comics and then in the digital first series. But he wrote the New Fifty Two Hawk and Dove, and it was bad. So these characters seem to taint these creators that I really like. I keep I keep following these like writers that I like and when they work on these characters, I'm not happy with it. But it's 
You know, I, I wish that I could get Sterling Gates in a room and pump him full of truth serum to find mm-hmm. out how much of that book was editorially controlled mm-hmm. or pushed by Rob Liefeld. Because he, I think Gates basically writes the first four issues and then is kicked off the book, which I don't think is like him, knowing what I know about his other series. And even when you read it, the stories in that are so ridiculous. It's like they kept just wanting to go more over the top. So it's like, Hawk and Dove fighting zombies on a plane that's falling out of the sky that's crashing into Washington, D.C., where there's, you know, another army of werewolves that are fighting people. You're like, whoa, you know, I don't need so much insanity going on at the same time. And when you read Gates's other work, it's never that ridiculously over the top. So I think he must have been handcuffed. I had one interaction with him. I think it was on Firestorm Fan. It was on Shag's website. He was talking about something, I think, I think it might have been around the time that Vibe was coming out um, because of the tie-in to the to Firestorm, the TV show, or something. And I left a comment, and I just ripped apart the Hawk and Dove number one. Like, it was the worst New 52 issue that I read, and it wasn't just Liefeld's art. I thought the story was stupid. And I think Sterling Gates commented right after me, something to the effect of, like, well, you can't please everybody. And... <laughs> I felt terrible because I never imagined that he would actually read that comment or something. And I was like, oh, man, I'm sorry. But then I was like, but I also, I can't back down on that. I was like, I'm sorry. I know it's subjective and some people might have enjoyed it, but I didn't. And and you're right. I think, I mean, because I know he's better than that. His stuff with Supergirl, both the digital shorts and the uh, the old series, you know, you know, or after or pre-Flashpoint, those were good stories. I like him. I want him to do more stuff for DC. But... Oh. Yeah, if yeah. you haven't read that Vibe series, you know, and trust me, I'm not a big fan of Vibe, that Vibe series is a lot of fun because I think that he was allowed to write the story that he wanted to. I think yeah. I read the first issue, but it was coming at a time when I was just, I was jumping off of DC. I was, I was, there were still a few series that I was enjoying, but it just seemed easier to just cut my losses and just, <laughs> and I was like, I'm only going to get back issues for DC at this point, so... I have to say stuff in support of Sterling Gates, um, mostly because of his Supergirl run, but um, he's always – I think he's a, a Jeff Johns that DC don't take advantage of. I mean, I think he's such a solid writer and a really good plotter, and um, they don't seem to give him much of a, a leash uh, to go and run where he needs to. Um, and plus, he put he named a character after me in his uh, Adventures of Supergirl comics, so uh, <laughs> I'm right. a big fan. That's right. I remember that. <laughs> good stuff. Um Okay, well then, forgetting you know, Hawk and Dove runs that we don't want to read, what are some Hawk and Dove stories that fans should take advantage of and they should read if they want to know more about these characters? Uh, so I would definitely recommend um, the uh, Kessel-Liefeld miniseries, which I think set the stage um, for the new Hawk and Dove, and that uh, series like we talked about, I think is definitely worthy uh, of, of being found in the dollar box and reading. Uh, I think Hawk does play a small part in the Doom Patrol Suicide Squad special, so knowing who my co-host is, um, I would recommend (laughs) that as well. Um, But I will say, otherwise, um, as we said, Hawk alone is really a caricature, so I would not read any book that does not have a dove uh, involved. Paul, what do you think? Yeah, I'd echo that. If you just wanted to try one issue, I would recommend Hawk and Dove number 20, which is 
basically like a, a diehard story in a shopping centre with Hawk and Dove. But uh, it has Kevin Maguire art, um, oh, and it's cool. just fantastic. Uh, and, uh, you know, funny characters and a lot going on. But, yeah, there's pretty much uh, the volume two of Hawk and Dove that came out in the uh, late 80s through the 90s is really solid stuff all the way through. And uh, I think... Even you would enjoy it, Ryan, I would say. Uh, I, I think you'd see the appeal after a couple of issues. And I think it's actually stronger than the uh, lead-in miniseries. The, the lead-in miniseries does set it up very nicely. Now, uh, the elephant in the room we have to talk about is Armageddon 2001. <laughs> um, and I, I, the, this is my point with that is Armageddon 2001 was uh, a miniseries where uh, a character from the future, there was a despot in the future who was ruining everything, and this character came back in time, and he knew that this uh, the despot was a, a superhero in, in his former life, so he wanted to find out which superhero it was, so it could be male or female, and he uh, the Armageddon 2001 series ran through the annuals in 1991, I believe, and um, he looked into the future of, and so we sort of got Elseworld stories set in the future, and um and he would touch a character and see their future. This was Wave Rider. So it's also the name of the ship in Legends of Tomorrow, or Declot, as I like to call it. Um, <laughs> but he visited lots of series, and the series was really obviously setting it up to be uh, Captain Atom. And um, I think DC panicked at the last minute because they had a, a hotline that you could call and you could find out upcoming story secrets and things like that. And the Captain Atom reveal was put onto that hotline um, so they had an, a panicked editorial meeting and decided to, at the last minute, switch out Captain Adam to be Hawk. So the villain was set up to be Captain Adam, and suddenly it was um, Hawk instead who became Monarch. And uh, I think this is the worst thing that's happened in DC editorial history in my life. Uh, no, so I'm serious about this because it, it ruined the characters. So in this version, uh, Monarch came back from in time and he kidnapped Hawk and he kidnapped Dove and he held them prisoner and then he killed Dove in front of Hawk and then Hawk got so enraged that he killed Monarch and then for some stupid reason decided to dress as Monarch and become Monarch um, and the comic actually ends with Captain Adam fighting Monarch um, whereas obviously it was originally meant to be the future Captain Adam as Monarch fighting the present day Captain Adam who didn't want to become Monarch and then they disappear off into a puff and go into the worst uh, miniseries ever after that um, that's what happened to Hawk and Dove and it broke the characters like there is no recovery from what happened to them you know uh, they had a moonlighting thing going on in the regular series and then suddenly uh you know bruce willis kills her <laughs> yeah <laughs> you Wait, know, that didn't maybe... happen i'm pretty sure that happened in moonlighting <laughs> uh, uh, maybe he killed her career i don't know um uh, uh, maybe i was gonna get confused with the taming of the shrew episode when they yeah. go back to shakespearean <laughs> You know, to make matters even worse, just to sort of talk about 2001, uh, Armageddon 2001 even more, is that there is a Hawkind of annual, right? So, you know, Wave Rider goes through all of these annuals, touching people and seeing what can happen. And in the Hawkind of annual, he says conclusively, like the last page, there is no way that either of these two could become monarch. Absolutely not. Uh, and then, of course, that gets undone. Um, and you're right, even in like, you know, every time they try to come back, it just hasn't. It hasn't worked since then. It's like the curse of 2001. Yeah. And the other thing is they cancelled the series because of 2001. The series was successful and viable, and they just wrapped it suddenly um, because they wanted to make this 
seismic shift with Hawk. And then they tried to fix it over the years. So Jeff Johns did all these retcons to try and say, well, Hawk wasn't really Monarch. And then they resurrected Dove as, you know, in this very convoluted plot in the JSA. And it was never the same. It could never go back. You could not paste it back together into a picture that worked anymore. So I think they killed Hawk and Dove at that point. And I think everything that's uh, come afterwards has just been, you know, an echo of what it used to be. And, it was never the same, and you can't bring it back. I honestly believe you cannot do this again, this story again, because it worked so well. You know, you had the Lord of Awe and Chaos, and they have uh, established, you know, two agents to work together, and really they're in love, and then they change the agents to make them more effective. Yeah, and I don't, I don't think you can put it back in the box afterwards. But, I mean, know? certainly Zero Hour fixed it. Zero Hour fixed everything, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole point. <laughs> It fixed yeah, Hawkman, yeah. it fixed, you know... Oh. <laughs> uh, and the New 52 fixed it, and Rebirth will fix it again. So. Absolutely. Um, a few other appearances uh, that I know Hawk and Dove from. The Brightest Day era of Birds of Prey, written by Gail Simone when she came back. That was after Hawk was resurrected at the end of Blackest Night. Uh, Hank and Dawn were part of the Birds of Prey series for a little while during Brightest Day. Uh, and then... Their appearance in The Brave and the Bold, issue 181, that Alan Brenner story, that is finally being collected in the collection Tales of the Batman by Alan Brenner. All of his stories are getting collected, and I think... Oh, point of order there, uh, Ryan, it was already collected. Oh, was it? Yeah, it's in the uh, Mark Wade Brave and the Bold, uh, volume 3. Yeah, it's only got a few Brave and the Bold issues, and then it ends with some greatest hits, and that story is in there, and there's an impulse story. Oh, (laughs) you know what? I thought I because I was sure I read that, but I couldn't remember where I read that because I don't have the solo issue. So, okay. Well, that that story, the... Well, then, let me just promote the other Alan Brenner stories because, you know, he's got a Black Canary yeah. origin in there that'll be revisited later on in this podcast. Um, but that's, that book should be out, I think, by the time this podcast comes out. That Alan Brenner story is an interesting story because it's basically showing what a failure Hawk and Dove are as a, a team. You know, Hawk has lost all effectiveness and Dove basically gives in and starts becoming violent. And that story was sort of um, represented in the uh, ongoing series, I think issue 25, as sort of an alternate version because it was very clearly set in the 70s and, you know, mm-hmm. sort of dates the characters as having been around for, I think, 15 years with no effective use of their powers. So. Yeah, it was kind of an indictment on them at the time. Yeah. All right, well, any final thoughts on Hawk and Dove before we go? Well, I'll just say I keep waiting for um, another imagination that uh, will grab me the way that this uh, Carl and Barbara Kiesel uh, version did, because I do think that there's opportunity there for great stories. Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice to see it tried again, but you would have to pretend it hadn't happened before, I think. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you very much for being on this episode of the Secret Origins Podcast. Paul, where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more from you in the podcastosphere? <laughs> I do a little thing called Waiting for Doom, which is a Doom Patrol podcast, which uh, at the moment seems to be um, rolling down the hill and gathering Jared Way fans like uh, we couldn't imagine. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, our demographic has skewed younger and more female lately. So <laughs> that's very interesting. Um, so Waiting for Doom is our Doom Patrol podcast. It covers all eras of the Doom Patrol, but we're going to tackle the Jared Way stuff as it comes out every month. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. 
Yeah, I'm hoping that those same fans will listen to this show because of the Cave Carson origin, because, of course, the Cave Carson is part of his young animal imprint that he's doing. (laughs) Yeah, that's super cool. Where can they find you on Twitter, Paul? Um, I'm reading underscore Hicks, which is spelled H-I-X on Twitter. And if you see a picture of uh, Koala getting punched, that's me. So that's quite (laughs) memorable. And Dr. Ange, where can people find you? I run a Supergirl blog called Comic Box Commentary that um, if you just type Supergirl blog into Google, I'll be the top. You can also see me on Fridays on the Legion of Superbloggers, where currently I'm in the middle of reviewing the uh, Mark Wade Barry Kitson three boot. Um, and I do most of my social media on Twitter where you can find me at uh, Dr. Ange 70. Well, one more time, thank you both very much for being on this episode. It was great to talk to you. I hope our listeners, if they already love Talking Dove, I hope I didn't spoil it for them. If, like me, they weren't fans, I hope you guys gave them a new appreciation of the characters. Oh, no, thank you, Ryan. And let me just say, and please don't edit this out, that I think you just killed it on this show. You've done such a great job. And there's been so many memorable episodes like The Whip, <laughs> Animal Man. <laughs> And Shazam, they were three of my favorites. <laughs> I can't imagine what those three have in common, but it's good to know. Uh, yeah, thanks uh, thanks for having me on. Um, I really love these characters, and so any chance I can talk about them, uh, I'm happy to. Uh, and I'm glad that uh, I was able to talk with another fan uh, and maybe convince you to become one. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> He has been challenged to read all the comics he has collected. This podcast will summarize, review, and reminisce about a single comic book issue and the time period somewhat chronologically by release date. He keeps a stack of comics near his bedside for when the time is right. Who is this interesting comic fan and what is the podcast? Hello, my name is Pat. I don't normally do podcasts about the comic books I read, but when I do, I podcast about them on The Longbox Crusade. Listen to it on iTunes, Stitcher, or on theLongboxCrusade.com, and check out the Facebook page. Read them all, my friends. talking about the origin of Cave Carson. I know, I'm amazed it took 43 issues to get to this story too. And here to help me explore the secrets of Cave Carson, making his return to the show after he appeared on the Booster Gold segment, please welcome Mr. Andy Capellish. How are you, Andy? Drill, baby, drill. <laughs> <laughs> doing well, man. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, thank you very much. Whenever our listeners are uh, listening, I guess. <laughs> I- 
I like to think they wake up immediately, like like as soon like in the middle of the night in a dead sweat, and just <laughs> you know just put put their earbuds in and just start listening. to this. New Secret Origins. <laughs> <laughs> they're fiends. They're addicted. Yeah. Um, now I, I do not want to downplay the importance of a character like Cave Carson. But there were not a dozen people begging to be on this episode. And yet, I gave you a list of five or six stories, and you jumped at Cave Carson. So why is that? He's awesome. Look at it. Like, I don't know. I just like his costume a lot. And also, like, I mean, I don't know. Like, there's a lot of, like, cool non... Like, they're costumed adventurers, but they're not, like, crime fighters. Mm -hmm. And I feel like... I just, like, I don't know, like, there is a uh, Brave and the Bold Hero Clicks line, like, one of the releases, um, and I had never heard of Cave Carson before that, and I, like, pulled him out, and I was like, who's this guy? Like, look at him, he's standing there, and he's got his arms at his sides, and, like, he's just, like, looking at you disapprovingly, and uh, I like his, like, red and white costume, and I was like, this guy's awesome, so... I ended up, like, I was pretty into Heroclix when that came out, and I, like, ended up playing him a lot. So, um, he's just, like, a cool, like, I like the sort of DC oddity characters and the guys that are more, like, you know, Challengers of the Unknown and stuff. Mm -hmm. They've got some pretty good stories. I think that they get overlooked quite a bit. And also, you know, DC doesn't know what to do with them these days when, you know, pretty much all they want are, uh, you know, uh, costumed crime fighter types, you know. Yeah, they're pretty much the superhero realm, and anything outside of that is hard to find a niche at the big two publishers. Uh, but I'm I'm right there with you. When I first started doing a lot more of research into the history of DCU, I stumbled on this weird little niche, kind of right between the golden and silver ages of superheroes, where they had all of these adventuring types. And you mentioned the Challengers of the Unknown were one. The Sea Devils were one. And the Sea Devils, of course, going into the ocean. And you had Cave Carson on the other one going into the Deep Earth Core. And I just thought they were really cool ideas. Unfortunately, there wasn't as much material for Cave Carson, so I haven't read a whole lot outside of, you know, he was lumped in with the, uh, the Forgotten Heroes. The Sea Devils are also really, 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 really cool. This is a cool idea. And I believe they had planned to do a secret origin of the Sea Devils in this series, and it just never manifested. The series got canceled before we ever got that story, but that's too bad, because I think that would have been really cool. Uh, Getting back into the publication history for this character, Cave Carson first appeared in 1960 in the pages of Brave and the Bold issue 31, the first installment of that series after the Justice League of America's three-issue tryout. Cave and his fellow Spelunkers were created by writer France Heron and artist Bruno Preniani, who would co-create the Doom Patrol a couple years later. While Cave Carson received the standard three-issue trial in Brave and the Bold 31-33, through 33, the stories were not popular enough to spring Carson into his own ongoing series. A little over a year later, he showed up again in Brave and the Bold 40 and 41, written by Bob Haney with art by Joe Kubert, but all those appearances managed to do was secure Cave Carson a three-issue stint in another one of DC's anthology series. Showcase issues 48, 49, and 52 were the last appearances of Cave Carson until the 1980s. He appeared briefly in a Superman story in Action Comics 536 in 1982. For the next three years, Cave Carson would appear five times as part of the group known as the Forgotten Heroes, which included Animal Man, Rick Flagg, Congorilla, and Dolphin, all of whom appear in Secret Origins at some point. 
and in fact, the Forgotten Heroes title might have been more relevant for Cave Carson, who despite appearing in three issues of Showcase, failed to appear in the star-studded Showcase issue 100 that boasted 60 guest heroes who all had appearances in Showcase over the years. After the Crisis on Infinite Earths and this issue of Secret Origins, Cave Carson guest-starred in the eight-issue Time Master series from 1990. Later that decade, he popped up in the Resurrection Man series, he starred in the War That Time Forgot maxi-series, and made a brief appearance in Final Crisis. And, almost inexplicably, Cave Carson will be the star of a brand new series titled Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye, coming this fall from Gerard Way's Young Animal imprint of DC Comics. I know I'm buying that first issue just for the title alone. How about you, Andy? Uh, I had no prior knowledge of this, but uh, as an old-school MCR fan, I am stoked for whatever is coming down the pipeline. That's two great tastes that taste probably pretty good together. Yeah. So, I, I have no like. I actually I read an interview with Wade because he was talking about you know he's he's writing Doom Patrol too, and he's got three other issues coming out that he's. I don't think he's writing all of them, but he's sort of chaperoning them, kind of like producing them. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like yeah. sort of a, 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 oh gosh, what's that called when like there's like an auteur, but then they like take a step back and so they're like the producer or whatever. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like what like, uh, James Wan is going to do with the Conjuring stuff, you know? Right, right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, almost a sort of like guiding consultant or. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Making sure that they stay on track. Yeah. But I guess like he was looking at old stacks of who's who. And he came to the entry of Cave Carson or, or something, or was looking up the DC wiki something, and it saw the sentence, Cave Carson has a cybernetic eye. And he's like, that is going to be the title of a comic that I'll work on someday. So, so, um, do you know of any other stories that I missed? He didn't show up at all in like Batman Brave and the Bold. Like, I didn't see anything, but like he is the prime candidate to show up in, in a project like that. Oh, yeah. But I, didn't, I don't remember ever seeing him. Yeah, I don't know if he's had any other multimedia appearances outside of comics yet. That would have been a perfect Brave and the Bold episode, which is having Batman going into the Earth with Cave Carson. Oh, yeah. Or especially, I think, more of a, uh, like, an opening... Uh, yeah, one of the teasers, opening, yeah. Yeah, one of the teasers, and maybe, you know, appears later on if he does well. But he has a history of not doing, not performing well <laughs> when given chances. As, yeah, as we said throughout the 60s, he was given a couple chances that never turned into anything. <laughs> All right, well, let us get into the secret origin story. The origin of Cave Carson is titled Adventures Inside Earth, which is a reference to the masthead on all of Cave Carson's Silver Age appearances in Brave and the Bold and Showcase. They always said, Cave Carson, Adventures Inside Earth. The story was written by Bob Wayne, illustrated by Tim Truman, lettered by Tim Harkins, and colored by Helen Vesick. The splash page features Cave Carson and his entourage racing away in his souped-up hot rod explorer dubbed the Mighty Mole, while a giant lava monster chases them. The lava monster is a reference to the group's first appearance, but otherwise has nothing to do with this story. The story is narrated by a member of Cave Carson's crew, Johnny Blake, who describes himself in excessively glowing terms. His description of Cave Carson? Not as flattering. In fact, he takes a couple of jabs at Cave throughout the story. As the story begins, Calvin Cave Carson is a lab tech at E. Borston & Sons Research Corporation in the 1950s. 
Carson works on the Mighty Mole Project, which includes his revolutionary Therma Ray, capable of cutting through solid rock effortlessly. The purpose of this project is for Carson to explore the vast mysteries under the Earth's surface, while the company secures mining rights for the rich ore deposits underground. But, on the same day Carson perfects his Therma Ray, the Soviets launch Sputnik into space. The Borston Company decides to shelve Carson's subterranean project and reassign all their efforts to the space race, but Cave isn't interested in going to the stars. One night, he breaks into the lab and steals his own research notes for the Mighty Mole and the Therma Ray. He rebuilds them in his own shop and assembles a team composed of Christy Madison, a brilliant geologist and requisite female love interest, and Bulldozer Smith, a strong man with a background in prison and the circus, who appears to know stuff about tunnels, I guess. Cave, Christie, and Bulldozer take the Mighty Mole on several adventures in the deep caverns beneath the Earth. They discover unknown races and encounter fantastical monsters, though in his narration, Johnny Blake is quick to downplay the actual danger any of these monsters ever posed. Eventually, Cave's group recruited Johnny Blake, who fails to mention in this version of the story that Cave saved his ass, as documented in Showcase 49. Johnny says that Christy Madison fell for him hard, but Bulldozer's pet lemur didn't like him much. That didn't matter so much, because by the time Johnny hooked up with him, Cave had burned through his money and the group was broke. Johnny proposed one final adventure, a road trip through the caves with the mighty mole stocked full of beer and snacks. What was supposed to be the gang's final journey turned out to be a fateful one, as they blasted through a cave wall and accidentally stumbled upon... A secret Nazi cell of soldiers and scientists in the process of bringing their Fuhrer through a time portal. <laughs> Couldn't make that up. The sudden arrival of Cave's group disrupts the Nazi operation, sending Adolf Hitler back to his time. Cave Carson and Bulldozer waste no time leaping out of the Mighty Mole and charging the Nazis with their fists, but the two are outnumbered and surrounded. Before the Nazis open fire, Johnny Blake triggers the Therma Ray, disintegrating the Nazis. Christie praises Johnny's quick thinking while the other two scout the Nazi cave and discover a hidden store of treasure. We then flash forward to more or less modern times, that is, circa 1989 when the story was told. Johnny Blake is old and in poor health, but he's still got Bulldozer's pet lemur, Lena, for some reason, who annoys him constantly. He reveals that after they discovered the Nazi hideout, Johnny sold Cave Carson out to the Borston Company that had wanted their Mighty Mole technology back. Eventually, they bartered. Cave got to keep the Mighty Mole in exchange for giving the company the Nazi time travel platform. Cave, we're told, kept the Nazi gold and used it to fund his own research, building a newer, better lab and equipment. As time passed, Johnny recalls that Bulldozer went to Vietnam, Christie moved on to another man, and Cave is supposedly doing shadowy work for the government. As for Johnny, guilt, a lemur, and other ghosts of the past continue to haunt him. So... What did you think of the origin story of Cave Carson? Despite the obvious uh, moral implications of Cave Carson being a huge jerk, um, and also everyone on his team being a huge jerk, uh, <laughs> the uh, the no, I I, I like the uh, the actual story itself was uh, very good, very serviceable. Uh, the art was a little again, and I, I I know that I always complain about the art, but the art was a little bit janky for me in this issue. I, I wasn't really a big fan of the uh, the way that because I think they were kind of trying to emulate that sort of um, 1950s adventure space age comic look mm -hmm. uh, or like, but like through the lens of the 1980s and uh, much like Peggy Sue got married 
or uh, any one of those, uh, uh, even to some extent, uh, uh, Back to the Future. That like it's just like it's obviously the '80s looking back at the '50s or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it's just kind of like I don't know. There was a little bit of uh, uh, visual dissonance for me, but like yeah, I uh, I, I really. Uh, I really thought that the story was interesting and the uh, big reveal was uh, packed a little bit of a punch, which was a, a surprise. So <laughs> Let's come back to that the thing that you mentioned, the moral implications. <laughs> I, I do want to address that, but first, just uh, on the art, it's illustrated by Tim Truman, who I loved his work. He did Hawkworld. I mean, he did a lot of stuff. He did Grimjack and Star Slayer, but I think he's best known at DC for creating Hawkworld, the first you know prestige format series for Hawkman. Which I really liked his art in that. That, like yeah. a lot. And so this issue, this story actually came out the week after Hawkworld issue one. So he would have been still, I probably still doing that project while he was doing this. And it sounds like the writer Bob Wayne, and again, that's a thing because he wasn't really well known as a writer. He was uh, like the vice president of sales at DC. You know, he started in 1987 and worked there until 2014. But for some reason, he just he liked Cave Carson and he wanted to write the story. So. <laughs> So he roped Tim Truman in, and and I get it, yeah, he's, I think he is trying to emulate a slightly older style, but maybe just the fact that he was working on this other big project, he just didn't have as mm-hmm. much time for this. Although, I, yeah, I, I like a lot of the images, but there is a sort of, there's a bit of a disconnect that I can see when we get to some of the kind of linear, like, time thing. Okay, forget that. We got, we need to address the thing. Okay. We get the story of them fighting Nazis at the end, which for some reason, I don't know why, but yeah, it's, okay, cool, they're going to fight Nazis, that's always a good thing, that's always a way to make me like your heroes. But then they reverse that by having the heroes keep the Nazi gold, which they do make a Uh, point of saying was illegal. Yeah, that's not their gold, and it's not the Nazis' gold. They need, they need to go turn that in so it can go back to the rightful owners because that is stolen property. Yeah, that, that's. but we also, like, after we get that decision or something, we sort of change focus and we don't really know much. Like, we flash forward, like, okay, they're like, okay, we're going to, we found this gold, this is awesome, and then we instantly flash forward to Johnny Blake, who's old and dying and basically just seems to be haunted and, like, he, like his last line is he's asking for a drink. Like, this decision might have ruined his life, but we don't get the details about that, and we don't know how it affected the others who were supposed to be the more likable people. So, it's just a weird sort of ending that comes out of nowhere, and and this story does... It's sort of a prequel, because Bob Wayne would also go on to write the Time Master series a year after this with Rip Hunter, but Cave Carson was a big part of that series, But I I haven't read it, so I don't know what influence this might have had on Cave's character in that one. So I don't know. It's a 10-page story. I was digging it for the first eight pages, and then the hero kept Nazi gold, like stolen gold. um... You you can't really – funding – you get some blood on your hands if you're funding your operation through uh, gold that was stolen via uh, attempted genocide. Like yeah. it's like it's like, and then he kept the blood diamonds and used them to build his superhero empire. And right, like, right. uh, no. Especially because so. like, his like his goals aren't necessarily philanthropic. Like he's making the world a better place, or he's you know ending poverty or something. He's not channeling the stolen treasure. He's building fancy cars that can drive underground, and he's doing all these laps. Like this is his personal hobby that he's funding. 
<laughs> I don't know. It's just it's it's really ridiculous. And like I I know that socially we're in a much more progressive place than we were even in 1989. Uh, I guess especially in 1989. But like, yeah, there's some real there's some real moral quandaries about the idea of this guy basically is like, well, I'm gonna use this stuff and I'm gonna go find mole men and I'm gonna fight them. Uh, so like it's like yeah, it's like I don't know. There's just. There's a real, like you said, a real disconnect here. Also, is this... I know that, like, Challengers of the Unknown, Sea Devils, they're basically where the Fantastic Four comes from. Uh-huh. But, like, the, I was like, I was like, DC, why are you doing a... Like, are you doing a reverse Fantastic Four? Or is the Fantastic Four reverse of this? Because of, the like, the whole space launch thing, and they're like, well, Russians are going to, the, going to space, might as well dig into the Earth's core, see what's down there. The characters, Cape Carson, his strip does predate the Fantastic Four by about a year, but his origin, like, he never got an origin in those first appearances. The bulk of this story is brand new material that Bob Wayne said. So, yes, the elements of this story that he's borrowing are lifted from the Fantastic Four and that rush to get into space before the Nazi, or not before the Nazi, before the Soviets. <laughs> So, yeah, it is. Even though the characters come before the Fantastic Four, and the Fantastic Four were modeled off of this adventure for some type, they are then lifting better story kernels used by the Fantastic Four to prop up this the, one. There was a ton of that going on in the late 80s, oh, sure. early 90s, because like the, the whole like Hank Henshaw, uh, mm-hmm. Cyborg Superman, they lifted that, and then they also did... So, yeah, I was, just, I was, I was curious as if there was a like this predated Fantastic Four or if they were like, oh, these guys are like the Fantastic Four. I'm going to go ahead and use that like as a jumping off point. So sitting in a theater and like, oh, the Russians have done it. If someone came in, like I can find out about about that news after I'm done watching the creature feature, Mr. Usher, you need to stop. (laughs) Like I I worked, I worked at a movie theater. If you, if I rushed in and just been like, you know, I don't know, something area era appropriate news like, oh, there's a writer's strike. Just like run into the theater and just be like, hey, <laughs> that was weird. That was a weird element. Am I wrong? <laughs> I mean, I can sort of forgive it. I think at the time that was a bigger deal with with the Cold War and with the state that I mean, I don't know. Like I I, I that didn't like kind of like ping my radar. It's It's not like. Like like interrupting a movie theater to say yeah yeah uh, Trump won the Iowa primary or something like that just give me all heads up. <laughs> caucus Iowa doesn't have a primary it's the Iowa caucus damn it Ryan get your stuff together <laughs> no, their, their phones would have been glowing anyway to tell them that this was uh, I think more akin to like there's been a natural disaster or like a, a national emergency like somebody has been assassinated and I think a lot of people did kind of equate you know, the space race and the Russians beating us into the stratosphere before. Yeah, yeah but what, what's, what's the difference of, like, like what's the difference of <laughs> finding out 35 minutes before your movie ends or finding out in 30 minutes? Like, it's like, you know, I can see, like, oh, they got, they, you know, they've got a nuclear bomb pointed right at us. Maybe that was, like, the impetus where it was like, I don't know, that thing's a spacecraft. It's probably got lasers or, I don't know, something. But, like, yeah, it, for for me, that's maybe it just goes against the training that I had when I worked at the movie theater. But you don't do that! <laughs> 
It You're might've... not supposed to. Okay, but maybe the usher wanted to get home early. Like, either it was a crappy movie or he had, like, a hot date or something. He's like, I need to clear this theater out a half an hour before the film ends. Like, what? Oh, was... oh boy. It's not the mole man again. I got a hot date with Peggy Sue. <laughs> um, so, yeah. The, the other part about the story that struck me weird as... Okay, the whole thing is they, they go underground, they have these adventures, and they find these secret, you know, cells of aliens or lava men or magnet monsters or things. These are all kind of like these fantastical things from like 50s and 60s early science fiction. And that's kind of what I expected to find here. And I think if you had swapped out these like time-displaced Nazi holdovers and their stolen Holocaust gold... <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, oh, no. a race of underground lizard men and uh, stolen pirate gold or something like that. anything else like you could have salvaged this story and not made me hate the main character or hell like just like a giant like oh look there's a there's an underground colony of giant ants there's a baby one we can bring up to the surface and you know kidnap but like, even that's m- less morally reprehensible than what we were presented with. But yeah, like, I don't know. Or, or you know, just be like, oh, here are some pictures of this underground civilization that we found. Like, you know, like, I don't know. It's just, yeah, there there were some very interesting, and I would, I would argue, bad choices made when it comes to this story. <laughs> so, yeah, like, it started off really strong. I was digging the story. I liked where it was going. Uh, and then it went weird. They sort they breeze over really quickly the history of their like we almost get like four like black and white snapshots or Polaroids of the different creature encounters that they have you know, on the bottom of the. Third I thought day. those were I thought those were really neat. The art the art on those is fantastic. I thought that visually when they did something a little bit different that was out of the sort of mold. I thought that I don't know why I didn't bring that up earlier, but <laughs> yeah, it was. I really like the sort of more scratchy, almost, uh, I, I don't want to say Steve Bissett type art, but like mm-hmm. there was definitely a sort of a dot matrix or cross hatching, whatever they used to do back in the, the 80s. It was pretty common for the time period yeah. from what I've read. Yeah, I really dig the art on that one. Um, I don't know what the deal with the lemur is. I, Chi-chi! It's, it's the first thing we see. The first panel is just this thing popping out of the, the upper border and it's like Bulldozer's pet, but it annoys the hell out of Johnny Blake. And then at the end, it's sitting on Johnny Blake's lap. Like, the, the fact that this thing is still alive 25 years later. And uh, I I get the feeling, I hope this story would make a little bit more sense in context if I had read Time Masters. And if any of our listeners have read that series, please let me know if any element other than Cave Carson comes back in that series. Well, let's 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 take a step back and look at this for a second. We know that they are morally bankrupt people. Like we know that they maybe I I, I don't we didn't we they completely glossed over bulldozer and the woman uh, character. The what was her uh, Christy. Uh, Christy. Like, okay, so they, they completely just did not focus on them at all, other than there's there's some real, uh, this does not pass the Bechdel-Wallace test in any way, <laughs> shape, or form. Like, there's, they in fact, they barely mention her, other than as a, an object. Um, but, like, uh, you know, maybe this is, like, sort of meta-text, and so for the, the price for stealing the Holocaust gold, like, each one of them has to live out their own personal hell. So, like, maybe, like, you know, uh, him becoming an alcoholic, like, that thing's not a lemur. It's a demon, a literal, actual demon. 
and uh, like he's been stuck in this like you know sort of limbo area. Uh, you know, where he's got to live out his days dealing with this demon monkey creature, a literal monkey on his back. You know, that, I mean, that, that would make would sense. That would interest yeah. me if you commit some atrocious sin and you're condemned to basically spending the rest of your life with salacious crumb attached to you. Yeah, he's just the, you know, chi chi. I bet, I bet he, uh, I bet he, when he goes out and, uh, hangs out with his buddies, I guarantee you salacious crumb is there. Like, <laughs> The story, it was actually, I think it was collected in the uh, Time Masters trade paperback. So, again, if people want to find this story, they can read it there. There haven't been a whole lot of other collections of Cave Carson material. When he's with the Forgotten Heroes, those stories have been collected in some of the, the Superman collections of Gil Kane. But short of that, I, I, like we said, I think he only had like seven appearances in the Silver Age. And they haven't been collected that I know of. But short of that, I mean, he, like, he will, I think in September or October, he will get a new ongoing series called Cave Carson Has a Cybernetic Eye, which, again, I'm, I'm buying that just for the title. Maybe maybe we'll figure out what's going on, like, you know, the first panel he, like, wakes up and uh, he's in literal hell and the, uh, st- like, uh, Johnny's there with the, the monkey <laughs> and, like, that'll they'll, they'll finally explain that, you know? So, hope, we can hope, right? We can hope. Or <laughs> one way or the other. So, uh, do you have any final thoughts on the story of Cave Carson? Uh, I do not. Other than uh, he's like he's a visually interesting character, and honestly, I think he would be a great fit for either uh, you know a Brave and the Bull type show, or even you know with what what DC has been doing on the CW with the Berlantiverse. I mean, this character screams to be, uh, you know, in a, in a Legends of Tomorrow episode. Oh, so uh, ho- hopefully with a, a more intact sense of right and wrong. But uh, who knows? It seems like the kind of premise, like you could take this guy, maybe like reappropriate his supporting cast, make it more of a family type adventure thing, like a Lost in Space or Land Before Time type of thing where you just... Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like or even like... Like a ride at Disney World or one of the, like the studio rides or something where you know all the kids get in get they get to ride in the mighty mole as you know the screen around them makes it look like they're going to the caves or something like that. <laughs> that, that, yeah. that, could, that could be a fun little trip or something for the family. Right, right. Now coming to Camp Snoopy in the Mall of America, <laughs> uh, Cave Carson's ride along. Um, no, yeah, this this I mean it's a it's a it's a it's a character with a lot of potential and it's an IP with a lot of potential, but. Uh, you know, Cave Carson theoretically deserved better than he got uh, as far as this one goes and as far as this, his history goes. So, Even, like, at the beginning of the story, like, he was working for the company. He stole the the, the company's proprietary technology back from them just to just because he wanted to go into caves. He had this he – he was jonesing for this hobby, but – I would just like to say that if uh, any of my future or past or present employers are listening to this, I do not steal from the company, okay? <laughs> like, I just like superheroes, so Booster Gold and this guy, who have, who have <laughs> adventures. I did not choose this for it's a specific a reason. criminal tendencies. <laughs> right! This is not me returning to the scene of the crime, okay? I've never stolen from anyone that I've worked for. <laughs> Uh, except for like pens and stuff, but well, that doesn't count. <laughs> it, was, it was unintentional, right? Uh, plausible deniability. <laughs> oh, and also that uh, that time machine and <laughs> and the mole vehicle. But n- other than that, nothing. <laughs> All right, Andy. Where can people find you online if they want to hear more from you? 
you can always check me out on, on Facebook. I'm always uh, on there. And then also uh, my Instagram is uh, uh, 1138 reference, all one word. Well, it's like 1138 reference. And then uh, but I'm probably not going to be online very much because I just downloaded that new Pokemon game. So <laughs> I will be uh, training to be the very best that no one ever was. So uh, good luck. Good luck, rest of the Internet. I will see you in a few years. <laughs> Have fun with that. I'm glad I got you here yeah. beforehand. Yeah, it's, it's the, literally the, your last chance. Uh, no, <laughs> I will. Uh, yeah, uh, that's the best place to find me. But um, yeah, thank you so much for having me on. And uh, let's uh, hope that our hero makes better choices in Cybernetic Eye, which I am very excited for. Yeah, me too. Thank you one more time. It was great to talk to you. Always great. Always a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. All right, listeners, don't go away because I will be back after this promotional break with the secret origin of Chris KL99. Who? Stick around and find out. When you think of podcasts about religion, you probably think of this. But at least one religion podcast sounds more like this. Dorkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality. But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books, because we're nerds. Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Well, think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes, with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history, because we're theological nerds. If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content. Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad. Dorkness to light. Often irreverent, rarely sacrilegious. Happy to welcome my guest back to the Secret Origins podcast for the fifth and final time. 
He is the financial advisor of the podcasting realm and the host of the Quarterbin Podcast, as well as his own comics reading journal. Please welcome Professor Alan Middleton back to the show. How are you, Professor? Great, Ryan. Glad to be back on the show. No spoilers, but glad to be going out on top. <laughs> I am so glad you're We have been building up to this for how many episodes? Yes. Oh, so much. And I want our listeners to know what a big deal this is, because I don't want them to understate the magnitude of this segment. Anybody can talk about Batman. I mean, I could throw you know a rock and hit somebody who can talk about the origin of Green Lantern or the Titans. But people, it takes a certain amount of commitment, dare I say a righteous nobility, to come on this show and talk about Chris KL99. And having summers off really helps too. <laughs> I'm sure that does. I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but what is your experience with the iconic A-list caliber merchandising megastar known as Chris KL99? Well, I was a subscriber to DC Comics Presents. <laughs> it is possible. I mean, I can't remember when that subscription lapsed, but it's possible that I read the issue with the Forgottens when it came out, and maybe he was a part of that. But in terms of a specific recollection, I heard of Chris KL99 when he was mentioned on an episode of Rob Kelly's great Who's Who podcast. <laughs> I don't even think I even like picked up on him then. Um, <laughs> yeah, full disclosure, I have owned this issue of Secret Origins for about two years now. I had never heard of this character, Chris KL99, until last March, four months ago. <laughs> now, figure that out. I didn't know the character, and by extension, this story existed when I started this podcast. Surprise! <laughs> exactly. Like, somehow my eyes just glazed over, like, the two names at the bottom of, like, Cave Carson and Chris KL. I knew Cave Carson was in this one, but... I mean, uh, this I, I thought of this issue primarily as the Hawk and Dove issue, and not being a Hawk and Dove fan, this was pretty low priority for me. So I just kind of shoved this one off on the back, and <laughs> so yeah, I we, we I got, do need to talk about this cover for a second. Okay, okay, because we, we got Hawk and Dove obviously front and center, mm -hmm. and they are in a cave. They are. So we are getting the Cave Carson reference, but where is the major shout-out to Chris KL99? Where's his reference? Where's his hero moment? He's, the, he's one of them in the back. I think that's supposed to be Cave Carson and Chris KL91. He's the, he's the yeah, one with but, his hand on the stalagmite, but he's miscolored. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when you're talking an iconic character like this. I, I, uh, <laughs> what do you want me to say here? <laughs> Um, so for the people who have been following this character since his inception, you imagine that Chris KL99 starred in the first feature of the first issue of Strange Adventures, cover dated August 1950. The character was created by writer Edmund Hamilton and artist Howard Sherman. He went on to appear in Strange Adventures issues 2, 3, 5, 7, 9, 11, and 15. All eight of these stories were written by Hamilton. The first four were illustrated by Sherman, with two of the latter four drawn by Carmine Infantino and the rest by Murphy Anderson. Chris KL99's last Silver Age appearance was published late in 1951. 
after that. The character would not be seen again until 1984 in the pages of DC Comics Presents issue 78, where he guested along with numerous other forgotten heroes that you've already mentioned. And after that, he appeared in Crisis on Infinite Earths issue 10. And after that, inexplicably, this issue of Secret Origins... And his final appearance that I'm aware of was in one panel of a montage of cosmic characters in the 2007 volume of The Brave and the Bold. And shout out to Siskoid for that, because I would have completely forgotten about that one. Um, did I miss anything? Um, well, the movie franchise. <laughs> sure, okay. The TV spinoffs. <laughs> and, no, I think you pretty much the got mobile it. mobile games, the, uh, the cell phone <laughs> app game. <Yeah. laughs> All right, Professor, would you tell us the saga of Chris Kale 99? I would love to. It was written by Joey Cavalieri with art by John Workman. A note at the end says that this is dedicated to the memory of Mike Sikowski. We start on the day that a newborn became a hero, which was also the day he was born. Felicia Thomas of the Expositional News Network makes the important announcement that the first baby born in space is a boy. That boy is Christopher Columbus Ambler, and he does become a hero with licensing deals and reality TV shows. But on the day of a televised birthday party, he gets snatched by aliens in a close encounter of the maximum kind. The Earth Alliance president, clad in the traditional black turtleneck, promises retaliation. And nine years pass with no retaliation because politicians – But just as the council is getting tired of spending time and money studying the aliens, they very kindly pick just then to return. But we Earthlings attack them, disable their shields, board their ship, and hey, we find Chris, who reveals that he was taken for a very special purpose. The KL were the last 98 representatives of a dying race of telepaths. They poured all their knowledge into him. Knowledge he was supposed to share with Earth until the Earthlings rescued him via an attack on the ship. Now he must go find any vestige of the KL and rejoin them to complete his training. Until then, I am part of your world and part of their culture. I am Chris KL 99. The end. Thank you very much for that, Professor. (laughs) Okay, so... (laughs) Before diving all into my notes, um, Don Markstein has a Tunapedia, which is sort of his kind of database and repository for a lot of comic book and cartoon characters. He's got an entry in for Chris KL99 in it, and it says, I'm just going to read right here from his write-up, Chris KL99's biggest post-series appearance was in Secret Origins 43, which recounted his early history, adding hitherto unsuspected details while deleting many already established, such as claiming he had a regular human-sounding name, Christopher Columbus Ambler, and inventing an early career as a licensing icon, and having him kidnapped at age 8 for murkily explained reasons by the first aliens encountered by Earthlings, and actually explaining where the KL came from, and no more Hulk and Jero. Even the color of his hair was different. There were, in fact, virtually no points of similarity between this Chris KL-99 and the one back in Strange Adventures which recalls a prominent element of his original series. Inasmuch as no noticeable use of the character was ever made again, the reason for giving one of those everything-you-know-is-wrong origin stories to an unheard-of no-account was, like so many other things about him, never mentioned. 
everything you've never heard of about this guy was wait a minute. Yeah, like once I actually looked into this character, like I thought, okay, the biggest thing about him is he's this explorer, this Christopher Columbus of space. We don't get that in the story. He's got these two sidekicks, one from Mars, one from Venus. We don't get them in the story. Like he has a chameleon dog. Yes. yes. How could you not include the chameleon dog, Loopy? <laughs> why? Why did this story happen? I mean, first, I mean, we can't ask why. First, we have to ask what was going on here in, yeah. in just in the story itself. Okay. There's, there's no story. There's no beginning. There's no middle. There's who, no end. Actually, I wrote down who is the main character of this story. Exactly. It's, now. it's eight pages, and I think every page is, has like a different focus and a different. Not even POV character. We don't even get that. And you know, I, th- I think they're going for some kind of angst, but that's totally misplaced. And there's obviously supposed to be this dramatic hero moment at the end that doesn't just miss. It misses badly. And Joey Cavalieri was a better than this. <laughs> like, a solid I, professional writer. Yeah, like Huntress. That, his work on Huntress was awesome. And then you get the issue of why would they retell the origin in about 180 degrees different? I've heard, I mean, basically, like, somebody somebody could make the explanation was that they wanted to keep the copyrights on this name, of this character. So, they, you know, they're going to just publish it so that it doesn't fall into public domain. Which, why they would really miss this character, but I understand. If you've got something, hold on to it. They're, they're a corporation. DC isn't going to let anything lapse now. But... If all you're doing is republishing this character's origin so that you can hold on to the likeness, why reinvent it so differently? Like, because, I mean, as, as we said, you know, this is a very brief you know, recounting of the origin, which was in Strange Adventure 7, which, let's just say, I was able to look at a copy of and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. And it is so different from this. He, yes, he was born in space, okay. But originally, he's raised on Earth. His parents headed off. To find sort of Earth-based planets, Earth-like planets, so they were, they were sort of the original explorers. They die off in space as heroes, sacrificing themselves. He finds the planet that they were on, and he finds a recording from his parents, sort of encouraging him to carry on their life of exploration in the universe, which is what he does. What's wrong with that story? Um, that's a pretty good golden age sci-fi story. That's it's a good hero's quest narrative. It's. It's the the start of every good like quest story. And Edmund Hamilton again was a legitimate sci-fi writer. Yeah, both of prose and comic books. Why not rely on the basic, again, the key aspects of that story? It it's is. confusing. Well, it's confusing because we don't know anybody. We don't know any of these characters in this setup. Like, I want to say the main character is Chris's father. Like his, I don't think Chris's mom gets a line of dialogue in this entire story. I don't think she says a word. And the father, it's just so understated. And I don't know if this is the script or if it's a failure in the art. I do want to talk about the art in a minute. But when Chris is kidnapped by these aliens, we see two panels of his father. One is like he puts his hand up to like the airlock or the whatever. And he just says, my boy, exclamation point, no emphasis, and then they've got my boy, but it's like, and he's just got his hands up, but we don't see his face, we don't see any emotion, and uh, part of this, the the artist of this, John Workman, was not an artist, he was a letterer, like, he drew precious few stories, a lot of them were for Dark Horse, but... Yeah, like you said, in 
in this one, there are a lot of side views mm-hmm. and rear views of the characters. Yeah. Which is, as you say that, just think about Workman's career, clearly because he didn't want to draw a face. Right. I mean, that's obviously what's happened. And there are a lot of long-distance shots as well where, again, there's clearly an attempt to not have to draw detail. And that's not even mentioning the lack of backgrounds. Right. I mean, that's an inker as well. Did, did he do the inking? Uh, it says artist and letter. Yeah, I think he yeah, did I those. Think so. so, yeah. But the letters are nice. <laughs> I guess, yeah. You know, he knew what he was doing there. So when when Chris comes back at the end, I, I still don't understand him. He's so detached. He has no expression. It's like he, he feels like an alien character. He as much as says, you're not my real family. You didn't raise me. And I'm going to go out in space. So it's like, why did you come back? What is your connection to these characters? Because he even says, like, I'm not real. I'm a thought-projected image. And he disappears at the end. And yet, in order to come back, like, the kill, the kill, whatever, the, the K apostrophe L, right. were wiped out by the people during this rescue attempt. So We think, except maybe there's more <laughs> that he's going to try to find, even though three word balloons before he said we've destroyed them all. Yeah, I don't <laughs> – who am I rooting for? What do, what do I want to happen next? Because this doesn't make me like Chris. This doesn't make me want to find out more about him because I don't know anything about him. He just says they kidnapped me and they passed all of their knowledge onto me. Knowledge of what? It would be nice if he actually brought some knowledge. <laughs> like the cure to something. The secret to happiness and world peace. You know, an example of something, something that might have, what do they call it in stories, stakes? Yeah. We, we, we don't have any idea of what's been lost, of, like you said, who we're supposed to root for, who we're supposed to feel sorry for. This does remind me just a little bit. There's sort of the same fatal flaw in this story as Secret Origins 16, my very first appearance on the show, mm-hmm. way low those many months ago. On the Warlord episode. Yeah. Actually, the same two fatal flaws. One, neither of these stories actually tells the hero's story. Right. In, in, in neither case is it the main character as the point of view character. At least in the Warlord one, there was a different, clear point of view character. This one, it's a little muddled. And two, both stories were a little boring. I, I'm trying to... There's an interesting premise in the story. There's an interesting hook, whether this was Joey Cavalieri coming up with something or somebody else, but the hook of, okay, we've got this character, he's born in space. The first person to be born in space, we would make that into a celebrity of some kind. And the licensing, that would be an interesting facet of the character, making him a merchandising icon. But then he's kidnapped at age eight, never seen again for like 20 years, like, or however many years. Does that, have, does that affect one thing or the other? It, it doesn't seem to. Oh. There's this bold, we will seek vengeance and do whatever we can. Oh, the presidential have- address is... Talk about... Okay, look, the art, then. We get basically like the four panels, like they look like the monitors of a TV screen, like which would be like right. for the presidential address. But it seems to be paneling down on him. Like, like <laughs> Why does the address start with his forehead in front of like the, the logo? And he, like, what? Oh, I don't... 
I mean, there is movement in that, the quote-unquote camera, or in this case, maybe literally, you yeah. know, the camera angle. But yeah, you, you don't start the State of the Union with just seeing the top of Obama's head. <laughs> and then it's like, whoa, whoa, we forgot he was that tall. Wait, let's go. Wait, oh, oh there we go. Now, now we see him in focus. No, they kind of figure that out before the address. And then it's just the same image, just cut and pasted on every panel of those. But Well, I mean, in, in Workman's defense, if he's drawn one face that looks okay, mm-hmm. just copy and paste it to the other places. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it seems like, a, it seems like a, a weird combination of a vanity project. You know, let's pick this obscure character and try to do something with him. Then again, this sort of artistic tryout for Workman. Other than that, I don't really have a, a reason for why it might exist. Yeah. But that's what New Talent Showcase was for. That's not, I mean, I guess at this point they knew the series was winding down. Yeah. They, so oh, maybe, yeah. maybe I don't know, you know, seven issues, you know, maybe not. I mean, they were still in the back of some of the letters columns, like later on, they were still talking about, you know, like in a way to coming up in the future, we're going to have origin stories for these characters and these characters. And Mark Wade mentioned some characters that didn't appear in Secret Origins. Mm, okay. So I, I think yeah, they actually, had, you know, yeah, maybe seven or eight issues out, they don't know. They haven't gotten the official word yet. Right. And on some of these ones that you've done recently, there have been some interesting combinations. I think Animal Man and Man Bat from a few episodes back right. was an interesting the, – the Gorillas was an interesting combo. Even the Rogues Gallery was an interesting combo of characters. This one just seems to be a little more random. Yeah, and I, I hate to end it on a down note, but this is easily my least favorite issue that we've covered so far. Simply because I didn't know or care about Chris KL99. I had no emotional investment in that character, and the story isn't that great. Yeah. Cave Carson, I had a mild curiosity in his adventures, but like not as much as the Challengers of the Unknown or even the Sea Devils. Right. The Sea Devils don't get an origin story in this. And, but, and no offense to Hawk and Dove, but if they're your lead... The thing is, I don't really like Hawk and Dove. I mean, th- yeah, I don't. You know, but that's what I'm saying. If they're your, if they're your marquee names, uh, that's a struggle. Yeah. So, and you know, we looked at some of these earlier Strange Adventures, yeah, yeah. the Edmund Hamilton stuff, and those stories all had interesting things. There was some depth to them, and that actually was not even always an aspect of Silver Age sci-fi stories. Um, some of those were reminiscent of the the sci-fi short stories. I'm a huge fan of sci-fi from 40s, 50s, right. both in comic book and in short story. But there's some real masterful stuff being done. And I've recently spent some quality time with free and legal comics <laughs> available at the Digital Comic Museum. Yep. These are the, the public yep. domain comics from the yep. 40s and 50s. And so I've read things like uh, – Space Detective and Strange Planets and, you know, there's probably eight or ten of these comic book issues. And think, well, eight or ten, that's not a lot. But you got to remember, that's probably 50 stories. Sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> so, and these Edmund Hamilton, Chris KL99 stories are in the top third, you know, the top quarter of the stuff that I've read from that era. It's pretty good. And this retelling, as we said, it makes no logical reason why – and then the story itself makes no logical sense. So it's, 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 it, was, it was disappointing. 
It didn't. I mean, I, I read those Strange Adventure stories for research just to kind of get a better grasp on the character because I didn't get one from this origin story. Right, sure. And reading this, like, if I wasn't doing this podcast, and that's that's the real thing, this story doesn't make me want to know more about this character. No, which not at all. may or may not have influenced the fact that we never see the character again after this, other than group shots of cosmic characters. Chris uh, KL99 Rebirth? <laughs> Could happen? Ah, Jim Lee, put him on that. He needs <laughs> we need the, the Jim Lee publisher status quote that you know, the, the instant infusion of the audience and the Like we said in I guess Secret Origin seventeen, if you can't find a place for Adam Strange in current DC yeah. continuity, it's tough to figure out where Chris KL ninety nine fits. Because sir, you are no Adam Strange. Right. Right. But at least I mean Forgetting this story, going back to the premise, he was a space explorer. He had his own ship called the Pioneer. He had two sidekicks, these goofy aliens, like one from Mars, one from Venus, so you can play on that. And as you said, a blue chameleon dog, or a chameleon dog that changed colors. You could do stuff with that. Yes, you could do you could do like crazy sci-fi like Star Wars type of, you know, the like the Star Jammers from Marvel and X-Men. Exactly. Right, right. He doesn't need his own series, but you could go to that once every 2 years, just have somebody, you know, the Green Lantern's team up with them like Hal gets knocked unconscious and he's floating adrift in space when the Pioneer shows up. First off, Hal never gets knocked unconscious. <laughs> Oh, no, wait. Sorry. He always does. Never mind. Sorry. My bad. My too thick-headed. <laughs> <laughs> if you can find some old copies of Strange Adventures, uh, if you can find them digitally, they are out there. Uh, again, big shout-out to Siskoid uh, mm-hmm. on his blog of Geekery. Yes. He covered Chris Kale 99 for his Who's That segment. He gives you some scans and some overviews of some of those early appearances of Chris Kale 99 they are more interesting than this story. I don't know that they're that interesting, but... <laughs> Compared to this, yeah. they are A-plus material. Yeah, really. So, um, You mentioned just being a fan of science fiction in general from that era. Were there other stories or other series that you would recommend if, if people wanted a flavor of this type of story, but maybe with a, a different protagonist, a different lead? Well, I think in general, your strange adventures yeah. are probably a pretty good place to start. Mystery in space. Yeah. I mean, those are probably really good places to start. And like I said, if the Digital Comics Museum, I've just started to uh, work my way through the loads and loads and loads of material that is up on that site. But there's a ton of 50 sci-fi stories yeah. from, from that era. Some good, some not so good. <laughs> and I guess we'll leave it at that. Professor Allen, I want to thank you for, you know... Uh, no, I appreciate you letting me go out on a high note, okay? <laughs> Let's just... I want to thank you for all of your appearances on the show thus far. This has been great. I've loved talking to you. Uh, I, I know that I owe you more than one, so if you need me, I'm available. <laughs> but this is great. I, I love talking to you about these stories, about these characters, about comics in general or anything. This has been fun, let me just say, as you're starting to near the, uh, near the end of this uh, yourself, doing these was A, a great idea, mm. and B, the execution has been pretty top-notch, by the way, just as a listener. Well, 
that's due in large part in in that's uh, everything about the execution is is owing to people like you and my wonderful guests everybody who's been part of this it's not just me if it was just me it wouldn't be the show that it is and <laughs> and that's why i've asked so many people and you've all been excellent uh, and I'm assuming that right after this, my lovely listeners will want to go out and hear more from you. Where can they find your podcasts online? Most of what we do is at the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network. Search Relatively Geeky in iTunes or we're at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com. And we put out content about once a week or so under many different podcast names. Most of them are my solo show, The Quarterbin Podcast. All about books I literally paid 25 cents or less for. And Shortbox Showcase, the show I do with my scion, my progeny, Emily. You remember her from the Zatanna and Zatara episode, lovely listeners, where we talk about topics and concepts and comics and related media. And specifically for fans of this episode, maybe not this character, but this type of character, I did cover a three-issue prestige Adam Strange story way back in episodes 15, 18, and 21 of the Quarter Bend podcast. So if you need your sci-fi comics fix, maybe that's a place to go. Well, one more time, this has been a blast. Thank you very much for being part of this. You're welcome, Ryan. Appreciate the invitations, even to this one. <laughs> Before getting to the listener feedback, I wanted to mention something about the Cave Carson story and hopefully stave off some potential criticism. I do like Tim Truman's art a lot more than it sounded when I was talking to Andy. His line work, his style, it's very cool and very moody. And yet, it's not without problems. There are a lot of static images. It's not as dynamic as it should be. There's little sense of movement in the first half of the story, and there are times when the art doesn't help convey what's happening in the story, especially towards the end. Other than that, the art in the Cave Carson story is solid. It's easily the best of the three stories. The origin is fine until the last couple of pages, and I'm not just referring to the Nazi gold part. All of the events and consequences after they take the gold are vague and kind of confusing. As for Hawk and Dove, like I said, Paul and Ange made a strong case for this story working as a .5 chapter in the Hawk and Dove series. If it works there, cool, but don't put it in Secret Origins unless it can stand on its own, which it clearly does not. The art is mostly terrible, and the writing is not new reader friendly. The Chris KL99 story reads like an underdeveloped treatment for a Star Trek episode that Joey Cavalieri wrote in college and didn't bother to revise after making a few cosmetic changes for the script. And the art was not ready for prime time or late night. So, I hope you had a better time listening to this episode than I had reading the issue. And I want to extend another thanks to Paul, Ange, Andy, and Professor Allen for helping me out on this one. Okay, let us get to your feedback. The last episode of Secret Origins covered issue 42, which featured the stories of Phantom Girl and the Gay Ghost. The episode received Twitter favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Ange, Bill Bear, Callum Nar, Candela's Right Hand, at Luther Lang, Codeman, at Beware the Map Man, Comic Reflections, Craig 101, Dan, at Dinosaur No One, 
David Fister, Dylan A. Lang, Film and Water Podcast, Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, Gabriel M. Cox, The Hammer Strikes, Hicks at Reading Hicks, Jared Alberic, Jen at JMM underscore 0401, Jim Bow, KSCGSF Podcast, Martin Gray, Michael Shew, Richard Field, Rift, Scott Rowland, Superman Cap Marvel at Krypton's Wizard, Treasury Comics, Two True Freaks, Victor Perfecto, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Over on Facebook, we got new likes and shares from Aaron Head Moss, Abba Daba, Alan Middleton, Ben Johnson, Bill Stebbins, Bradley Null, Clarence Hooks, Clinton Robison, Chris Phelps, Christopher Luke, Christopher Willette, Coffee and Comics Blog, David Ace Gutierrez, David Trenner, Gene Hendricks, G.I. Joe, A Real American Headcast, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, Henry Santa Jr., The Irredeemable Shag, Jay Jones, James Murray, Jeremy Gunter, Jimmy McGlinchey, Jonathan Brown, Kellel Commandy, Martin Gray, Nicholas Prom, Ruth Sutherland, Sean Emmons, Sean Brock, Sean Myers, Silver and Gold Podcast, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, Trevor Owen Williams, Valdis A. Kunzens, Van Z, Vinny G. and Freddie III, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Zeb Oswald. As always, I received a lot of great feedback on the website. To leave a comment there, just go to the Fire and Water Podcast website, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Post your feedback on the comment section, and I promise to address your feedback on the next episode. Though in the case of longer comments, I tend to cherry-pick bits and pieces I want to read on the air. The first comment came from Jeff R., who said, While I guess it isn't exactly important, the whole half-Cargite situation with Phantom Girl is one of those things that's so silly it's fun to talk about. I sort of wish Ryan had bitten off on that one rather than the Derlin R.J. brand business. So, when that was brought up, I didn't realize Cargite referred to the people of Triplicate Girl slash Duo Damsel's homeworld. Knowing that now, I have a lot more questions. I mean... I never thought of Phantom Girl as the hottest Legionnaire, but twins, or even triplets? That eh, might change things a little bit. Uh, Chuck Coletta posted a comment before he listened to the episode saying, In case it's not mentioned, the Grim Ghost recently made a cameo appearance in Scooby-Doo Team-Up issue 13, where Mystery Incorporated meets Deadman, the Phantom Stranger, and the Spectre. Other classic ghostly DC characters who pop up include Katie Trinity, The Ghost Patrol, Gentleman Ghost, Michael Gallant of Captain Triumph, Jeb Stewart of The Haunted Tank, and Tanarak. Alright, first of all, why the hell did we get Origins of the Gay Ghost and Chris Kale 99 instead of The Haunted Tank? Second, um, I meant to read that issue of Scooby-Doo Team-Up because a lot of people were talking about it back when I covered the origins of Dead Man and the Spectre. Either that issue of Scooby-Doo came out right before or after, but sometime around that episode. So yeah, I'll have to go back and check that out. Thank you for the heads up. Uh, Joe X posted a link to Tom Beerbaum's live journal post where he reflected on the Phantom Girl story from last issue. And then Joe also posted a link to a story synopsis of the Law & Order episode Love Eternal for anyone who wants to know what happened in that episode but doesn't want to purchase it on iTunes like I did just so I could have that clip at the end of the episode. Chris Franklin from the Supermates and Power Records podcast said, The Gay Slash Grim Ghost. Wow. 
That guy did look dead on like the Silver Age Timely slash Atlas slash Marvel Black Knight, later retconned to be an ancestor of the Avengers character. Was this Roy Thomas playing fast and loose with copyrights again, and characters that might be in the public domain, like the Phantom of the Fair? Who knows? But it's odd. And then Chris came back a few comments later to add that the cover pencils did look like Dick Giordano to him. Frank McLaughlin had a very similar style, Chris said, so I guess it may be him, but I think usually when Dick was credited as penciler, it was him. He may have fudged the inking credits here and there, but that looks like his work to me. Martin Gray from the blog Too Dangerous for a Girl added, Yeah, there's no way that's not Giordano. He was drawing Johnny Thunder in a similar style just a few years earlier. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast, the Film and Water podcast, Pod Dylan and Who's Who said, I'm tickled at the idea that DC was so nervous about a character called the Gay Ghost that they renamed him in the entirely opposite direction of that word. I'm assuming in some moldy file DC has unused concepts for Orange Beetle, Mineral Man, and Tommy Yesterday. And while I'll agree that the cover is kind of meh, drawing in design-wise, I appreciate the relative guts it took to do the whole Grim Ghost section in black and white. I like the idea of the black and white ghost section, but as it's actually done here, I don't think it adds anything to the cover. Uh, Jimmy McGlinchey said, Halfway through the podcast, and we'll comment in full later, but I just came across the mention of County Ulster at the start of the Grim Ghost story. County Ulster? County Ulster? There is no such thing as County Ulster. Ulster is the northern province of Ireland, and is made up of nine counties, none of which are called Ulster. Now, there was a County Ulster back in the 1500s, but that was long gone by the time of the setting of this story in 1700. It would be like calling one of the U.S. states in a story Appalachia or New England. Sorry, pet peeve of mine. Wonder if that was in the original story, or was that a Roy Thomas insertion? Though when Thomas referenced the actual Treaty of Limerick in 1691, and the Act, which was actually enacted in 1695, you would think he could get the name of the Irish county right. Martin Gray then replied, Well done, Jimmy, on the County Ulster correction. I cringed, and I'm at least two generations away from the Irish sides of my family. Bad, Roy Thomas. Other than that, nothing to say about the Grey Ghost other than the romance with your lover's descendant is a bit too TV Wonder Woman for me. And then Martin added, Groovy episode, even if I am amazed that Shag finds Phantom Girl sexier than Princess Projectra. Blimey, now that was a 70s costume. I don't know if the Legion of Superbloggers ever did this, but I kind of want to see a roundtable discussion or a panel debating questions like the hottest Legionnaire. Uh, Jeff Nettleton said, Sorry, Shag, Shadow Lass is way hotter. See, that's what I'm saying. That's why we need to have this out. We need a full-throated, hot-blooded town hall debate for these characters. Uh, Jeff goes on, I still think DC should have stuck with Gay Ghost and went with it, recruiting Howard Cruz to write it, or Robert Rohde. It would have been different, sure, maybe recruit P. Craig Russell to do the art. Dr. Ange of the Supergirl blog Comic Box Commentary said, I have to comment on Action Comics number 276, reviewed here by me, and Ange posted a link to his blog post. That issue is the first appearance of six, six Legionnaires, Phantom Girl, Triplicate Girl, Shrinking Violet, Bouncing Boy, Sunboy, and Brainiac 5, plus Supergirl joins, and the Brainy Kara romance begins. Now, if you're counting Triplicate Girl, wouldn't that make it eight first appearances? 
And as for Hottest Legionnaire, Ange says, it is obviously Lightning Lass. And Siskoid replied to Ange saying, boom, yes, we are of like minds. And I'm going to have to make a case for Dream Girl if no one else does. Uh, David Ace Gutierrez, executive producer of the Pod Dylan Show, said, two shag appearances on this network in a matter of three days? That's like tuning into a Three Stooges marathon and seeing nothing but Joe Bessers. Ouch. Uh, but I do have to agree with Shag. Tinya is one of the better members of the Legion of Superheroes and easily my favorite. She's the character that got me reading Legion, that's the acronym, all caps, Legion, and kept me reading after a second and third reboot. What's wrong with a gay ghost? Who wouldn't want to be haunted by Paul Lind? Shame, DC Comics, shame. Now that would be a great story. Uh, finally got multiple comments from Diablo Frank from the Marvel Superheroes podcast, the DC Bloodlines podcast, the Idle Head of Diablo, and Dinah Prince Wonder Woman podcast. Frank said, I recognized even before I started reading Legion comics that Phantom Girl was the most direct inspiration for my childhood crush, Kitty Pride, and I love intangibility, so I was naturally positively disposed toward her. I also dug all of her minimalist contrast costumes. However, she's a fake, humble, not-stuck-up rich girl who takes up with the lame TV-safe Fonzie bad boy in the ugly costume wielding a corny variation on a 100% ripped-off power set. I do, however, like the Secret Origins story, given prophylactic benefit of the doubt by being co-written by a woman in a voice I recognize as authentically female. I had four sisters with four entirely different personalities, but Tinia sounds like one of them. Hashtag not all girls, but definitely some are going to have boy craziness as a paramount motivation, and I think Tinia was handled more realistically and responsibly here than she might have been with an only a male guiding the story. If you gender-neutralize the narrative, it's about a person in a repressive existence acting out to expand their horizons with an emphatic but not delusional draw towards the opposite sex. If it were about a dude, we wouldn't say squat, so there's no shame in Tinia's game. Oh, and before I read Legion comics based purely on visuals and house ads, I thought Dawnstar and Shadowlass were the hot ones. Then I gravitated toward Phantom Girl and Shrinking Violet once I got to know the characters, but was ultimately won over by post-Zero Hour Saturn Girl. She's uptight, out of sight in all the right ways, and most importantly, I could divorce the character from her 70s bikini bimbo version. This is obviously setting aside the fact that we're only counting Legion-specific characters, because of course Supergirl is the hottest Legionnaire overall. Again, let's take it to the debate. Then Frank returned to comment on the gay grim ghost story. Gardner Fox was a learned individual in 1930s New York, so he almost certainly was aware of the existence of homosexuals, but the usage of terms like gay and queer in that context was not general knowledge outside of those circles. Most probably, Fox was referring to the strange gaiety of his ghost. I strongly suspect that perceived homosexual subtext in Golden Age comics by modern audiences is often actually a reflection of McCarthy-era lavender panic and widespread homophobia following in the wake of the sexual revolution. Once the public was aware of homosexuality, they reacted with open revulsion, the rendering of queer terminology as pejorative and an aversion to displays of male intimacy to avoid the appearance of impropriety. By seeing these displays as gay, we perpetuate the stereotypes that displays of same-sex intimacy is exclusive to gays and that it is inherently bad. Frank then talked about how much he disliked the central character in the Grim Ghost story before adding, Okay, let me get this straight. The gay ghost is an Englishman with a castle in Ireland where his lady love apparently resided with her runner-up baby daddy since her 1940s descendant had to come from somewhere. 
also meaning America, which she left to face German intelligence agents in Ireland so the gay ghost could possess her buddy, Beta Friendzone, and they could both go back to America, except when the Ghost Council assigns gay ghosts to battle Germans in England, since the story explicitly states that Ireland was neutral. Would it be possible to cut this down by at least one country? Would Roy Thomas literally die if he altered the origin in the slightest bit so that everyone just stayed in England? Must proto-deadman unethically in proto-weekend at Bernie's body? Isn't Homeboy technically a zombie with all the fatal bullet wounds? Dressed as proto-Corsair, join the All-Star Squadron stateside? Top to bottom, nothing about the gay grim ghost story works for me. And finally, finally, the real finally, I got a new iTunes review about a month ago. The author is anonymous, by which I mean it's a series of dashes and hyphens, unless that's Morse code for something. Either way, the five-star review goes, it's no secret, this podcast is awesome. I only recently came across this podcast in the past few days, but have since nearly caught up completely. It's always a joy to listen to Ryan and whomever is on the show to chronicle the origins of each person's favorite character. Johnny Thunder Rules, say you. Wow, Johnny Thunder Rules. This has been such a heartbreaking episode. Anyway, that's going to be all for this installment of the Secret Origins Podcast. The next two episodes will shine a light on some of Batman's rogues gallery, starting with issue 44, which tells the origins of multiple versions of Clayface. That issue ties into the Mudpack story published in Detective Comics issue 604 through 607. Definitely check out those issues if you get the chance before next episode. Once again, I want to thank my guests, Paul Hicks from the Waiting for Doom podcast, Dr. Ange from the Supergirl blog, Professor Alan Middleton from the Relatively Geeky podcast network, and Andy Capellish. Hopefully he didn't fall off a cliff trying to catch Pikachu. And as always, my deepest appreciation for everyone who left a comment on the website or an iTunes review, or a like, a share, a favorite, or a retweet. Thanks to all of you who support the show in any way. And until next time... Secret Origins Podcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01, or you can send an email to rdailypodcast at gmail.com. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed on the show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. I say-